and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of World Discussion with Agent Smith. I am joined by my good friend, known as Agent Smith. We're going to talk about foreign policy, economics, current events, world history, and respond to questions from the chat. Agent Smith, how are you doing, sir? Oh, I'm doing okay. Yeah, keeping yeah, it real. Yeah. Yeah, I've been trying to be a little more healthy lately. I was feeling pretty down under the weather, I guess. So I've been trying to kind of improve uh, what I've been eating and, you know, behavior and exercise just to kind of in an effort to try to improve my mental state, I guess. So that's been working a little bit. I'm hoping uh, better results if I keep it up. Yeah, there is a adjustment period where your body is kind of shocked at the change. I do know there are a lot of <clears throat> small changes that happen to your body. As you adjust to a certain diet, your body expects that same thing. Mm -hmm. So whenever you switch, even if it's technically a good switch, you're still caught off guard a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to hear that you're going for that. I've been trying to work on my lead up to practice with the samurai streams on Tuesday where I'm very aware of anything I put in front of me and anything I do and ask the question of whether that's related to my performance or not. And I try to pretty much cut out anything that's not directly related to my performance, which is surprisingly hard. There are a lot of distractions in 2020. <laughs> that's putting it mildly. And unfortunately there are. And it's been about two to three weeks since we've done an Agent Smith. That sounds about right. Yeah, so what has happened? What are the big ticket items that we've missed that might be worth mentioning? Big ticket items. Yeah. There's been a lot going on, actually. I've got a big backlog now from the past couple of weeks of all manner of stuff, and I've got a couple uh, aggregated categories, uh, aggregated topics, I guess, that uh, kind of fall under a theme, so... There's definitely quite a bit to go over, uh, but big ticket item, I guess I would have to go with, uh, off the top of my head, I would go with Syria. Has anybody mentioned anything about that, or have you noticed anything? I have not. What happened in Syria? All right. Well, let me find my notes here real quick, because there's a fair amount going on. It comes down to tension between the Syrian government and Turkey. There's been uh, some escalating series of tit-for-tat attacks, and it's looking like it could escalate further, which could be a problem because the Russian government more or less guarantees the security of the Syrian government. So there's a question of whether or not uh, the Turks and the Russians could end up fighting to some degree uh, in Idlib province over in Syria. Let's see if I can find it here. Ah, here we go. So I don't know how much uh, about Idlib province you remember. We've kind of talked about it off and on uh, for the past couple of years now. Uh, but basically Idlib province is the, is the northwestern province of uh, Syria, uh, roughly speaking. And uh, it's sort of, uh, well, not sort of, it is sort of, it is the uh, heart of the insurgency in Syria, uh, heart of the rebellion. Uh, that's kind of, it's not where it started, uh, but that is its uh, strongest holdout at this point, its strongest bit of territory that the rebels still have 
at this point. And the Turkish government has for years uh, backed the rebels there, uh, mostly in the form of the Free Syrian Army. Uh, But over time, uh, various jihadist groups also expanded in the territory and they control a good chunk of it now. And uh, that got to be a problem. Um, For those not familiar with the Turkish adventure in Syria, uh, the Turkish government got involved pretty early on in the Syrian civil war, I suspect with the expectation that it would be over relatively soon. Uh, as you know, that's not what happened. Uh, so the Turkish government, both surprised by the length of the conflict and disappointed at the lack of U.S. intervention, which probably would have been decisive uh, to some degree. Obviously, that's debatable, but uh, the Turkish government doesn't really know what to do, I think. And so they've more or less been continuing to support the rebels, uh, I suspect trying to carve out at least a sphere of influence to get some return on the investment they've made in the rebellion there. But they don't really have a lot to show for it at this point. And, you know, as we've talked about at length before, uh, there's not really going to be any conclusion uh, to the Syrian conflict uh, in any medium term or long term sense until the United States kind of figures out what it wants to do and makes that clear and makes a commitment to some given policy. So that still hasn't happened. Uh, and that's been the case for a long time. So the Turkish government, part of the reason the Turkish government is continuing to support the rebels is just to maintain its position, uh, to maintain leverage for whatever future talks or negotiations happen vis-a-vis a potential negotiated end of the conflict. Now, one of the sticking points in the peace process thus far, which has largely been Russian-driven, I think the Astana peace process uh, is the main peace process at this point. Astana is the capital of Kazakhstan, which is an ally of Russia. So there have been talks there from the different rebel groups, the Turks, the Qataris, I think the Saudis to a lesser degree. And then, of course, the Russians and the Syrian government as well. So one of the big negotiated points in the Astana peace process, and I think uh, specifically the Sochi agreement, which was made, I think, two years ago, was that the there would be a ceasefire, uh, a kind of, well, not a full ceasefire, but uh, a de-escalation zone, I think is the technical term they had. And the idea was that the Turks would set up observation points uh, around the periphery of rebel-held territory in Idlib province. And the Syrian government would promise not to attack rebels uh, within that territory. And in exchange, the Turks would promise uh, to remove the jihadists from Idlib province. Uh, One of the Russian government's claims to legitimacy in its intervention in Syria is that they're acting to remove terrorists, uh, which are a threat to everybody uh, from Idlib province. So that was the give and take there. Uh, The Turks would try to deal with the jihadist problem in Idlib province. And uh, in exchange, the Russians and Syrians would more or less recognize that territory that the rebels held as a Turkish sphere of influence, at least a de facto sphere of influence, and would kind of leave them alone, at least for the short to medium term. I don't think there was any guarantee of uh, what would happen in the long term. So what happened is that the Turkish government was either unable or unwilling to deliver on its end of the bargain. And so as a result, uh, Not only have jihadists continued uh, to thrive in Idlib province, they've actually expanded the territory they control. And so that's obviously uh, a problem for the peace agreement. And eventually the Syrian government uh, decided to start focusing 
uh, well, I shouldn't say focusing, they started to attack the rebels in Idlib province, citing the fact that the Turks had not delivered on their end of the bargain as justification. Now, part of the reason the Syrian government did that is because that they had been successful in uh, taking back other parts of Syria. They basically eliminated uh, most of the if not all of the Islamic state held territory west of the Euphrates River, uh, they had bottled up most of the, uh, well, not bottled up, they'd actually eliminated the rebel held territory in the south of the country. The south of country is actually where the rebellion originated. So that was a big win for the Syrian government. There's still a little bit of uh, rebel held territory around what, I think it's a town called Al-Tanif. It's sort of on the border with uh, Jordan. And uh, the rebels there have backing from the Jordanian government and the Saudis, I think. So for now, they don't bother each other. It's, I think the, it has the de facto backing of the United States government as well. I think there was even a U.S. airstrike that killed some Syrian troops that were trying to attack it a couple of years ago. So there's a deadlock there in that area around Al-Tanif. But for the most part, the Syrian government has eliminated rebels in the south of the country. They've eliminated the Islamic State. Uh, west of the Euphrates, which is the bit of Syria that they control. East of the Euphrates is the Kurdish territories controlled by the YPG and the SDF. Uh, the north of the Syria is where the Turks and their rebels are. So having gotten, having secured, quote unquote, most of the rest of their territory, uh, the Syrian government, I think, started feeling more confident that they would be able to marshal enough resources, uh, military resources, that is, uh, to attack Idlib province and to uh, maybe take it back or at least significantly pressure the Turks into giving some concessions. It's ambiguous the degree to which the Russian government backed them on that. Uh, Obviously, the Russian government is providing air support and probably de facto ground support in the form of uh, mercenary groups or uh, private military contractors or whatever technical term you want to call them by. But the Russian government, for its part, doesn't really want to antagonize Turkey because Turkey is a more valuable partner in the region than the Syrian government is. The Syrian government is a borderline failed state. So given the choice, I'm sure the Russian government would rather have good relations with Ankara than Damascus. But uh, as the guarantor of Syria's security uh, and as the Russian government is trying to boost its profile in the region and its credibility in the region by backing the Syrian government as much as possible, they can't really abandon them completely. And that's a problem for the Russians because they can't really tell Damascus what to do. The Syrian government wants to start shit with the Turks. There's only so much the Russians can do to stop them. I mean, they could hypothetically pull support, but then that undermines their credibility in the region. You know, their whole claim to fame, their whole claim to returning to prominence in the Middle East is that uh, they're successfully propping up this government. But to abandon them when they're taking back territory that they feel was unjustly lost by a hostile neighboring power kind of undermines that commitment by Moscow. So Russia's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. You know, they don't want to piss off the Turks, but they can't really abandon the Syrians either. So they've reconciled that by mostly backing the Syrians. And uh, even when they're doing things that they would rather they not do, but at the same time, they try to diplomatically pressure the Syrian government into refraining uh, while staying in contact with the Turkish government. So the Syrian set of offensives that has been ongoing in Idlib province for the past roughly year and change uh, has really challenged that Sochi agreement. Uh, The observation posts by the Turkish military were nominally a deterrent, uh, but the Syrian army has basically just gone around them, you know, basically literally gone around them. And uh, so their deterrent value is pretty minimal. 
I suppose there was an ambiguity about whether or not the Turkish army would intervene if the observation posts were either attacked or circumvented, as they have been. But uh, it seems the Syrian government was willing to call that bluff, and it seems to have been a bluff for the most part. <clears throat> you know, the Turkish army has more or less allowed the Syrian army to continue to advance uh, more or less unheeded. Now, that's been the case up till now because most of the fighting has targeted either jihadists or the Free Syrian Army, which is the primary rebel, backed, rebel group backed by the Turkish military. But what's changed over the past couple weeks is that the Syrian military, possibly in conjunction with Russian air support, it's not clear whether it was Syrian airstrikes or Russian airstrikes, uh, but Turkish military personnel have been killed. Uh, by either Syrian or Russian airstrikes. And that obviously is a big problem for uh, the Turkish government, as led by strongman Recep Erdogan. Uh, he obviously partly derives his legitimacy as being a strong nationalist leader. And so he can't really allow that to go uh, without some kind of retaliation or response. But then the difficulty he faces is that uh, if it is Russian airstrikes, and it may well be, uh, he can't really retaliate against Russia without incurring a lot of wrath. Uh, Russia, of course, would naturally retaliate, and that would put the Turkish government in a position where it would have to really decide whether or not to double down on its commitment with the rebels and maybe send the Turkish military in proper and really get involved in the conflict to a degree that they are probably not comfortable with. Uh, or they cannot do that, but then appear to lack credibility within the conflict, in which case they lose a lot of leverage and they lose deterrent value in Idlib province. It would probably just be a matter of time then uh, before Idlib fell to the Syrian government again. It's also worth mentioning here that the, that the Turkish government also uh, doesn't want millions more uh, Syrian refugees flooding into Turkey. That's also at play. Uh, but I tend to discount that a little bit to focus more on uh, strategic considerations by the Turkish government. I suspect that they would prefer uh, to maintain what gains they've made in terms of influence in Idlib province, but that's a little bit of speculation on my part. At the very least, though, you can definitely say they don't want the refugees. They've been pretty consistent about complaining about that and about pressuring Europe to try to help them in Syria uh, using the threat of unleashing uh, refugees in Turkey and allowing them to move into Europe unhindered. You know, they've been kind of trying to uh, go out of their way to provide places for refugees to stay in Turkey uh, to try to in an effort to discourage them from moving on to Europe. Uh, but in times of crisis or when there's tensions in Syria that the Turkish government is facing, uh, they tend to threaten Europe with allowing refugees to move in to try to get Europe to help them set up a no-fly zone or otherwise provide some kind of diplomatic support for something that the Turkish government is working on. Usually it's a request for a no-fly zone, specifically a UN-recognized uh, no-fly zone in Idlib province or European recognition of the YPG as a terrorist group. Uh, that has to do with Turkish tensions with Kurds in the border area, uh, which we've also talked about at length before. Okay, so that brings us up to the present, more or less. Uh, Turkish military personnel are dying. What does the Turkish government do? So let me check my notes real quick here. Uh, it's not really clear what exactly the Turks have been doing. In retaliation, the Recep Erdogan has been talking about uh, retaliating and you know punishing the Syrian government. And there have been a lot of claims about Syrian military personnel being killed by uh, Turkish artillery strikes, uh, possibly airstrikes, although I haven't heard as much uh, concrete on that. 
one of the things Erdogan said is that Turkey would begin striking Syria, quote, whenever it wanted, uh, end quote, if there were further attacks on Turkish personnel. And uh, he would also then consider the Sochi agreement null and void. Uh, words of President Recep Erdogan there. So my suspicion at the time, because this happened, I think, a week or two ago, is that it was probably bluster because I didn't think the Turks would really want to double down and uh, with the commitment in Idlib province in general, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, the Turks have been focusing a lot more on uh, the Kurdish border area. That's been more their emphasis. And they seem to have been pretty averse to uh, protecting the rebels in Idlib province, uh, at least thus far. So I think the Turkish government would have been pretty okay with some bluster, you know, some uh, exaggerated claims of retaliation that may or may not have been true, that may or may, or may not have been true. Uh, as their principal form of retaliation, a way of saving face politically within Turkey. Uh, keep in mind that's important to the Erdogan government because uh, their popularity has been in decline over the past couple years. And uh, in particular, one of the big signs of that was that they lost the mayorship of uh, the city of Istanbul, the largest city in Turkey and the most important politically. So the fact that the opposition was able to capture that uh, city was a pretty significant watermark in modern Turkish political history. And that's uh, the first time there's been a major reversal uh, for the AKP party as led by Erdogan. And uh, also polls suggest that uh, the Turkish people are getting tired of the refugee problem. Turkey hosts a lot of Syrian refugees and it's very expensive and there are issues with crime and uh, people disliking having all of these people around. So all of the issues that come with having hosting large numbers of refugees. That's taking its toll among the population. So that's not a vote winner for the AKP to be hosting all of these people. So the Turkish government uh, is really hurting politically as a result. So in order to try to save face, uh, well, saving face, I should say, is important for the Turkish government at a time when it's politically weak. And so that's part of the reason why this is a particularly sensitive issue that Turkish military personnel are being killed. <clears throat> Let's see. So then after that, and after a lot of consultation between the Russian government and the Turkish government, because like I said a couple weeks ago, I suspect that they were trying to stage manage the whole issue. Uh, the Russians didn't want to escalate. The Turks didn't want to escalate. So they were trying to figure out a way that everybody could save face and kind of get past it. And then 22 Turks were killed in a Syrian airstrike after the fact. So that suggested then that things were going to continue to escalate and that the Turkish government would not be able to save face with token measures. They're probably, that suggested at that point that they were going to have to do something more substantive. So the most recent news is that the rebels uh, in Idlib province have claimed to, re to have retaken a critical city called Sarakev, uh, which is a city along a highway that connects the second largest city in Syria, Aleppo, with uh, the capital, Damascus. And that's been a pretty important strategic objective for a long time for the Syrian military. Uh, they had retaken it a couple weeks ago. That's part of what led to the recent tit-for-tat escalations. Uh, but it seems the Idlib province, uh, the Idlib province rebels have taken it back, although that may be pretty fleeting. Uh, but the critical thing here is that the Turkish military allegedly helped them take it by prov providing uh, indirect fire support, that is uh, artillery fire. And if so, that suggests that could be one of the ways that the Turkish government is trying to retaliate. They're trying to, they're going to provide support of their own uh, as a retaliation for the loss of Turkish military personnel. 
but it's still not really clear the degree to which they're really going to commit and kind of uh, really back the rebels in order to try to allow them, give them the chance to retake all the territory they've lost over the past year or so uh, since the Syrian government launched its offensive. I don't think they're going to be all that interested, really, in doing something that ambitious. Uh, But there is an open question as the degree to which the Turkish government will continue to escalate its involvement. Uh, I think the most recent news, uh, more recent news rather, is that two Syrian aircrafts, two Syrian jets were shot down. And uh, supposedly by either possibly Turkish troops, uh, that was a pretty inflammatory, inflammatory suggestion, uh, but at the very least by uh, Turkish, Tur- either Turkish-backed rebels or Turkish personnel, you know, rebel forces in general, let's say. And uh, that's a pretty significant escalation if true. Because uh, they used man pads, which is uh, sort of the fancy military term for uh, stinger missiles, uh, that class of missile, uh, handheld anti-air missiles, missiles, let's call them. So for the rebels to be able to do that, because I don't think they've been doing a whole lot of that over the past couple of years. That's a pretty, uh, it's not necessarily a hard technology, a hard weapon to get a hold of, but in general, they haven't been using it all that much. I haven't heard too, about too many Syrian aircraft being downed. So for two to be downed in a week is pretty significant news. And I suspect that uh, reflects a commitment by the Turkish government to try to some degree uh, to retaliate here. So that's, again, that's just part of that tit-for-tat series of retaliations. The Turkish troops get killed. Uh, it, the Turkish government tries to resolve it with token efforts. More Turkish troops are killed. Uh, so they back the rebels with artillery support and uh, more Turkish troops, I think, have also been killed uh, in the past couple days. And so that's when the uh, two aircraft were shot down on the part of the Syrian army, uh, Syrian military, I should say. <clears throat> so the question then is how much further this tit for tat series of escalations will go. Uh, again, neither the Russians or the Turks really want to fight each other, but the Syrian army and the Syrian military and the Syrian government, obviously they do. So it may be that uh, the Turks have to fight, have to commit their military to try to at least stop the offensive. They may not try to reverse uh, the gains that the offensive has uh, obtained for the Syrian government, but they may have no choice but to uh, delve in and try to lay out some pain on the Syrian army in order to try to get them to stop. And that would probably be sufficient to satiate the Turkish government if they could do that. Uh, But it's an open question. It's not clear if the Turkish government would be willing to go that far, but they're going to retaliate somehow. And the the danger is uh, that they may accidentally retaliate against Russian forces or maybe even deliberately retaliate against Russian forces, uh, in which case there could be a spiral basically into a general conflict perhaps just localized in Syria uh, between Turkish forces and what limited Russian forces are on the ground. Uh, But perhaps with the danger, it could be that it could expand more broadly. I don't think that's likely, but it's possible. Uh, It's an interesting question, though, because Turkey could definitely put a lot of pressure on the Syrian military and the Russian military in Syria if they wanted to. Uh, just because the Turkish military is relatively good. You know, it's relatively well-funded, it's well-trained, it's a NATO member. So, you know, they've got a lot of the newest goodies, high-tech stuff. So if they really committed hard, uh, it would be pretty hard for the Syrian army to stop them. They would need a lot of support from the Russians to do that. And I don't know that the Russians have enough assets on the ground to really counter such a large sort of offensive. 
you know, again, right now, it's mostly just air support and mercenaries. And uh, logistically, it would also be very awkward because most of the supplies that Russia sends have to come through the Straits of Bosphorus. Well, I shouldn't say supplies, but ships anyway. The Russian Navy has to send ships through the Straits of Bosphorus, which, of course, Turkey controls. Uh, Supplies can come by air over Iran, through Iraq, and then into Syria. So that's probably not too much of a problem. But uh, losing the Straits of Bosphorus would be a little hard for them. hope I'm pronouncing that right. But anyway, that's kind of where we are. That's uh, sort of where the balance of power is right now. And that's what the that's the open question uh, that we're looking at in Syria. You know, just what's going to happen with Idlib province and the fighting between the Turks and the Syrians. <clears throat> so there's that. And then also uh, the negotiations between Turkey and Russia are ongoing, but they're not really going anywhere. It looks like the Russians are going to stick by Syria. Uh, I read uh, an Al Monitor article by a, a journalist suggesting that maybe Erdogan thought that Russia thought that he was too valuable to piss off. Basically, uh, that the that the uh, Russian go- that Erdogan expected the Russian government to try to pressure successfully pressure the Syrian government into backing off uh, in order to avoid alienating Turkey because Turkey was so important. Um, obviously, that hasn't happened. So. Uh, if that's true, Erdogan has been proven wrong, and he's kind of put in this awkward position he is, where he has poor choices to choose from. Uh, but he's going to have to choose from one anyway. So that's something to watch going forward. Uh, to be more specific on the negotiations here, the Russians are saying that they want uh, the Turks to move their observation posts uh, further, uh, closer to the Turkish border, to basically re- uh, pull them back. And uh, they also want them to agree to redraw the de-escalation zone uh, that was negotiated in the Sochi agreement in 2018. The Turks, for their part, want Damascus to just pull back to 2018 lines. They want them to give up all the territory that they've gained over the past year plus uh, to try to reset things to the status quo a law 2018. Obviously, the Syrians aren't that interested in that, so it's not likely to be an agreement, but the fact that the Russians are continuing to stand by them suggests that uh, the impasse is definitely likely to continue. I did pull up the map here of Idlib province, just so people have a basic sense of what we're talking about. Yeah, it's Turkey, Syria. Yeah, it's kind of on the northwest quadrant of Syria. Not quite. Aleppo is further north than that. I thought Aleppo was east of Idlib province. It is, yeah, northeast. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's nestled in there next to that uh, little bit of ter- Turkish territory that kind of juts into Syria there. Hmm. That's actually, uh, I think it's called Hatay. I don't remember exactly, but that province of Turkey is actually ethnically Arab. It's not ethnically Turkish, although I think there's been some tur- Turkification over time since they got it. Uh, they actually got that from the French. That was back when the French controlled Syria. And uh, there was some kind of agreement made wherein that piece of territory, which was originally Syrian, uh, was given to Turkey. I don't remember exactly what the context was. It's been too long since I read about it. Uh, but there was some kind of quid pro quo, and uh, Turkey was able to get that in, in return. And to this day, there's a very large number of ethnic Arabs who live there. But that's Is it nice? I think that's one of the tricky things about a lot of these territorial disputes and conflicts is sometimes it's over ground that's pretty valuable like the crimea Mm -hmm. 
situation, that's a pretty nice bit of land versus uh, when the Islamic State was expanding, they were taking a bunch of stuff that wasn't really super desirable. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. Uh, the stuff that they were taking was basically the stuff where there wasn't any kind of power in place. Uh, Eastern Syria is not super wealthy. You know, it's specifically because it's not very wealthy that uh, the rebellion happened in the first place. There was a, I think it was a, what do you call it? A drought. There was a drought and uh, the disproportionately agricultural economy in Eastern Syria was really damaged. And so that, that really hurt uh, the regime's popularity, which was already not great. You know, it's a pan-Arab nationalist, Baathist, authoritarian political system, you know, with all of the corruption and inefficiency and favoritism that implies. So it's not as though the government had a lot of innate support to begin with. So the drought just kind of, uh, the drought was the straw that broke the camel's back. Although there was other stuff happening as well. There was some nascent protesting and I think some kids ended up getting caught uh, spray painting graffiti or some damn thing. And uh, Oh no, the vandals. Well, they were arrested and tortured for the effort and that uh, really aggravated a good chunk of the population. Torturing children Torture will do for that. vandalism? Yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't for vandalism per se. It was more the fact that they were spray painting anti-government slogans and, you know, it was kind of a form of protest. Are there pro-government graffiti slogans? That sounds very contradictory. I'm sure there are. (laughs) I'm sure there are. You know, the government does have some legitimate support in Syria. It's not as though that uh, everybody in Syria thinks the rebellion is a great cause. You know, there's plenty of people as, I think, specifically the ethnic... uh, the Alawite? That's not an ethnicity, actually. There's a religious sect called Alawites in Syria. And uh, it's the Alawites that are actually in control of the government, more or less. I mean, it's not as though they as a whole are in control of the government, but uh, in general, they tend to be disproportionately represented uh, within the government and among economic elites. Uh, That's a legacy of French control. The French were trying to maintain control of Syria when it was a UN mandate which they got from the Ottoman Empire after World War One and the Treaty of Versailles, I think it was. And uh, one of the little strategies that they had was to take this community, which had traditionally been pretty marginalized in Syrian history, these Alawites, whom a lot of people did not consider real Muslims, which is not a great label to have in the heart of the Muslim world. So they were marginalized, they were not treated great, and so the French found them to be pretty natural allies. So they gave them disproportionate access to education. They gave them opportunities to staff the bureaucracy of the Syrian government. And as a result, over time, they came to become the elites of Syria. And uh, that's actually where the Assad family comes from. Uh, They are sort of of that group. So that group uh, has a lot to lose if the government falls from grace because they're a minority. It's not a, they're not a big part of the demographically. They're not a majority at all. So, you know, if the government were to fall, they stand to lose their privileged position. Uh, But there's also the problem uh, of jihadis. You know, again, not being considered real Muslims, quote unquote, is a pretty bad mojo when you're dealing with jihadis. And so there's a fear that if the government fell, then the jihadis would sweep into Alawite territory and commit genocide, which is wipe them out. Uh, So a lot of people, even people who are relatively liberal, Uh, are sufficiently afraid of what would happen if the government fell that they actually do genuinely support Assad. It's debatable the degree to which they think that Assad is actually uh, 
a good leader, you know, whether they think the system as it is is a good system. Uh, there are some, I think, who do think so. But I think for the most part, uh, a lot of people who support the government see it as the lesser of two evils. You know, I, we probably don't have too many Assad supporters listening, but, you know, if they do, maybe they could give us their perspective in chat. You know, that would, that's certainly one of the cool things about uh, this segment is that we have a sort of this live interaction with people of diverse viewpoints. So uh, hopefully such a person, if they're listening, would be willing to kind of share that perspective. But yeah, the government does have that kind of support. And uh, it's specifically Alawites are sort of the heart of that. Not sure how I got onto that. Mm, Syria, Turkey, France, Idlib province. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I guess to finish the point, um, the negotiations between Russia and Turkey aren't going anywhere. And so that suggests a standoff. That's going to, somebody's going to have to blink. Uh, you know, right now, if things keep escalating, then there's a real danger of a, a broader conflict breaking out. Ideally, one that would just be localized to Syria. That might not even be so bad because then the Turkish army could move in, um, I don't know, fight the Syrian army in a battle or something, probably win. I have a hard time seeing the Syrian army holding up against a top-notch, well, I guess I can't, I don't know enough about the Turkish military to call it first rate, but my impression is that as a NATO military, it's uh, upper tier, let's say. I think that at least would be uncontroversial. So if they could do that, then equilibrium could be restored, and then there you go. You know, things can kind of go back to normal, but if they do end up fighting with the Russians, then there could be a push, you know, back and forth push between the two fighting for territory. Uh, kind of like what we've seen with the rebels without Turkish support, only now with Turkish support and uh, with the danger of the Russians feeling the need to commit their own forces into the region. So at that point, there's, I guess, I guess I'm kind of belaboring the point. Let's just call it danger of escalatory spiral. Let's call it that and put a bow on it. <laughs> this could get worse you have been warned by agent smith so the turks have started uh threatening europe with refugees again since this has started happening and uh, i think the thing that they asked for was un recognized uh no fly zone in idlib province so the fact that they have returned to that uh kind of in kind of illustrates the impact uh, how serious the turkish government is taking the issue because they they had been demanding that Europe uh, label the YPG a terrorist group. You know, they had been asking for support uh, in relocating refugees from Turkey into that strip of territory along their border with the Kurdish area. You know, that's that's really been more their focus over the past uh, year or so. So the fact that they kind of shifted gears and started asking for the no-fly zone again kind of illustrates how important this is to them. Let's see. Um, I think I got the gist of all that, kind of going from memory. But yeah, that's uh, that's what's going on in Syria. That's It's nothing too terrible, really, in the grand scheme of things. But uh, the risk of escalatory spiral is new, and the fact that the Turkish military is directly intervening in the conflict, even if it's only in a limited capacity for the moment, is a pretty big change. So that's something definitely to keep an eye on. I've also got some stuff about uh, an incident in Kamashili, but I don't know how interested people are in that. And where? Uh, it's like far northeastern Syria. It's uh, There was a patrol of U.S. special forces, probably, uh, nom nominally 
the U.S. has forces in Syria uh, to fight the Islamic State. And in the territory controlled by their partners, the SDF, uh, they occasionally patrol, basically, nominally for Islamic State, I guess. But I suspect more generally just to illustrate that they're present in order to act as a deterrent against any potential regime ambitions in the area. Uh, So in the far northeast of Syria, one such American patrol ended up uh, having an incident with a local, I don't know if you you can call it a protest or a mob or whatever, and some, they ended up shooting some people and it turned into a thing, basically. But uh, that happened a couple weeks ago and there hasn't really been much that's come of it since then. And even at the time, it wasn't, I think, really widely reported. So it doesn't seem to have turned into a big issue. Uh, But I kind of went out of my way to read more about it just so I can get some details to figure out what it was because I hadn't heard of that happening. Uh, It's not just that the protests that they encountered uh, ended up, you know, resulting in deaths. Rather, what interested me was the fact that uh, the genesis of the incident was that the, the, the American patrol ran into a Syrian government checkpoint, which is weird because there's not really hardly any Syrian government-controlled territory in northeastern Syria. It's almost all Kurdish-controlled. There's some Turkish-controlled territory now since uh, that Trump pullout happened, uh, which we talked about. Uh, But beyond that, there's really not much. So I was kind of surprised to hear that there was any Syrian forces to kind of encounter in the first place. So uh, long story short, I mean, as far as that goes, is that uh, the Syrian government has actually retained control of a part of the city of Kamashvili. Uh, I think it's the city of Kamashvili. I'm not looking at my notes really, but uh, there's a city in the far Northeast and uh, the Syrian government from the start of the civil war up until now has actually retained a presence there. And they've done it by maintaining control of the airport. They control the airport and then some of the air territory around that in the city proper. And uh, they've also maintained a presence by way of uh, basically a kind of mutual understanding, shall we say, with the local Kurdish forces. You know, they don't attack them, and in exchange, the Kurdish forces don't come after them. So as a result of that deal, uh, the Syrian government has been able to kind of maintain just this weird little enclave in the far northeast of Syria, and it just hasn't really been in the news much, but uh, basically that's it was that area where the checkpoint was, and that's where the American patrol encountered the problem. So I won't go into that into too much detail here unless somebody wants me to. If somebody wants to kind of ask about that, I'll be happy to kind of go through my notes here and discuss it. But I think uh, it's a little bit peripheral otherwise. You know, there's a lot to get through. <laughs> We've got a lot of a lot of events to go through. So uh, we'll save that for later. <clears throat> so that's, I think you were asking what big ticket item had kind of been in the news and that that's what came to mind, but I don't know that there's really been any others unless there's something slipping my mind. So uh, I would ask you, Nero, is there anything that's kind of caught your eye? Anything that you uh, would want to inquest about? Well, the audience that I have is largely American, but even those who are outside America tend to get roped into American politics and the primary race is the thing that people buzz about the most. Mm, yeah. It's it hasn't been super motivating to me. I'm kind of disappointed in both parties, so <laughs> it's been hard to like cheer for someone. In previous elections I felt a lot more enthusiastic about 
certain candidates and a lot more interested in the outcome. But uh, was there anything that you think is an interesting development or anything significantly different from the last election cycle? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a different uh, election cycle this time around because, you know, last time we had some old school party politics going on with the nomination of Hillary Clinton. Uh, You know, there was a kind of sense it was her turn. (laughs) You know, she'd, you know, for those who don't remember, because it was a pretty long time ago, actually, she ran for president in 2008. And that just happened to be the year that Barack Obama uh, was running. And so she ran headlong into that whole hope and change movement uh, that Barack Obama had coming. And she really did not want to quit. <laughs> she she didn't drop out until relatively late. And they, they ended up having to, that is to say, when I say they, I mean the DNC, the Democratic Party leadership had to kind of broker a deal between the Obama campaign and the Clinton campaign, whereby uh, a certain number of delegates in the Democratic convention would vote for Clinton. Uh, not enough for her to win, of course, but uh, that was basically her consolation prize in exchange for stepping down so that Barack Obama could kind of continue unimpeded. So she really didn't want to quit. Uh, I think she saw the writing on the wall and kind of had to and eventually did, but that just illustrates the degree to which she wanted it. And so, uh, of course, when Barack Obama ran again in 2012, she didn't challenge him. You know, that was sort of the that was a norm. <laughs> that's, I guess it's one of the few norms that's still observed because I don't think Trump is really facing serious opposition for his reelection. But uh, at the time, Clinton observed that norm. But once Barack Obama was done, uh, there was she had signaled strongly that she wanted to try to give it a try herself. And of course, Joe Biden was uh, not interested in running for president. You know, there's kind of a history in the U.S. of the vice president. Uh, of a two-term president running for president uh, after the second term. So Joe Biden was vice president under Obama, but he wasn't interested. So there was an open field for the Democratic candidacy in 2016. And so, of course, that's where Hillary Clinton really decided to stake her claim and almost got rolled again, this time by Bernie Sanders uh, and the left wing of the party. But uh, the party, as well as you know, voters and the primaries, uh, ultimately kind of gave her the edge, uh, but it was pretty controversial. So basically, the establishment got its way, and it was very much an establishment candidacy and an establishment nomination. So this time, we're seeing a similar dynamic play out, but it seems like the populist forces are much more powerful. That doesn't mean it's inevitable that they're going to win, uh, but they've definitely got the steam this time. So you know, the establishment candidates and the Democratic national uh, leadership are kind of concerned about it because they don't know really if a left-wing candidate like Sanders or Warren can really win in the general. That's sort of the big question right now. There's an overarching question of strategy about how uh, the Democratic Party can win the 2020 election. Should they nominate a moderate candidate and try to win voters in the center and pull them away from the right? Uh, or should they just try to Or should they nominate a left-wing candidate and try to win by mobilizing uh, their supporters by way of voter turnout, basically in the same way that Trump uh, was able to win via voter turnout? So that's an unsettled debate at this point uh, in a way that didn't really exist in 2016, uh, or well, 2008, I should say, but also in 2016. uh, You know, there was generally a feeling that Clinton was 
the preferred establishment candidate and that she was a safe choice because she was such a you know steady hand politically speaking she's obviously always been kind of a bland candidate just because she's sort of politics by focus group you know who can we you know who do we need to appeal to to win xyz demographic so we say xyz thing to appeal to them that style politics was very much her bread and butter and she was very good at it so that's not really sexy politics so a lot of people criticize that but it actually does have a role to play you know if you're going to build a coalition in a political system that's very diverse and that has that tries to bring together different interest groups you're almost invariably going to have to inject some bullshit into your political platform because uh, if you're going to try to please everybody you're probably not going to end up really pleasing anybody but to build a coalition that's what you have to do you just have to try to please them as much as you can without aggravating them and aggravating the tensions that inherently exist between different interest groups so clinton was considered a safe choice because she was considered good at that and then Trump just steamrolled her because that style of politics had basically just lost all credibility by 2016. That's There's a whole debate about why, you know, there's a whole conversation to be had about why the Democrats lost in 2016. I'm sure books have been written about it and all manner of research. So I won't, I won't get into that here, but I'm just trying to illustrate the difference between 2016 and 2020 uh, is that there was still a sense in the Democratic Party that an establishment candidate could win if they had, you know, good technical uh, pol- political skill, you know, a good ground game, good organization, etc. Now, that's not really the case. And there's much more of uncertainty, much more of a question mark uh, in the Democratic nomination process. And that's the key difference, I think, between 2020 and 2016. So it's actually a really interesting process. Uh, I haven't been paying attention to it either, really. I've been waiting for the field to kind of winnow out a little bit. You know, there's always early in early going, there was a lot of candidates running and I wasn't really all that interested in reading in detail about each of them and all their different, you know, what differentiated them and what different groups were supporting them and all that jazz. I figured it would be easier, you know, given the ebb and flow of a campaign like that and change how quickly fortunes can change. You know, I didn't think it was really worth the effort until we got closer to the end point. Uh, obviously, there's still a ways to go, but the field has started winnowing. We started the primary, pro- the actual primaries have been happening. So we have a little more certainty. So I've been following it a little more closely uh, to try to start to draw a bead on just what the dynamics at play are, what the diff- who the different candidates are, and what the different policies being proposed are. So I do have a bit to talk about on that. I've got notes on it. Uh, so we can kind of delve into that a little bit. But uh, just to kind of address your point, you know, Nero, your question, which I'm probably spending too much time talking about. Uh, yeah, there is there is definitely a big difference, I think, between 2020 and 2016. And I think it's worth following uh, at this point. You know, I was I don't know that it was worth following before, given all the, uh, you know, again, the crowded field and all the theatrics and whatnot. But I think we're starting to kind of home in on the key questions, you know, about uh, the strategy you know, for how to win 2020, what the different policies that are going to win are, etc. You know, so I think we're kind of getting to a point where we can really have some meat to analyze. So let me see if I can find my notes here on that. <clears throat> I don't know how many um, people outside the United States are listening and to, you know, people who are outside the United States and listening and are interested 
in the Democratic nomination process, but I actually designed these notes more or less for them just to kind of uh, give them a rough outline of the different candidates running uh, for the Democratic nomination in the 2020 election, uh, just to give you an idea of roughly who they are and generally who they represent, or at least who the voters are that they're trying to appeal to. I've got so many notes over the past couple of weeks, I'm having trouble finding it. So give me a minute here. Oh, here we go. So some of this might be old news to your, you, Neuro, because you're probably relatively familiar with most of the candidates at this point, right? Some of them. I haven't done a ton of research. I've been feeling relatively more apathetic with this election cycle as opposed to the previous one. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. It's uh, It's quite the circus at this point. But, you know, it's the times in history when things are the most unstable and the most uncertain, when you have the most ability to really shape things. You know, this is where... The future is really shaped. It's like a hot piece of steel. You know, normally you can't bend steel, but when it's really hot, it's unstable and you can shape it. And so that's where we are right now. You know, the iron is hot. So now is the time for shaping. So I can understand the apathy, but at the same time, you know, if ever there's been a time for activism and involvement, this is definitely it. You know, I remember so many times over the past 20 years, you know, especially when I was in college, there was kind of a sense you know, college kids are always cynical and, you know, they're jaded. So there was a sense that, you know, you can't really change that much. And what can you do? You know, we had all the establishment candidates running. So there was a kind of a sense that politics wasn't that sexy. You know, that was back during the Bush years. I'm old. So, you know, the back, back when I was in college, that's uh, that was very much the status quo. And had the status quo as it was at that time had been in place for a long time. So it just kind of felt like it would never change. Uh, but, you know, the election of Barack Obama kind of started that change. And now we've got, obviously, a populist conservative Donald Trump in office. So now it's definitely changing. So <clears throat> apathy, understandable, but uh, things are definitely moving. Things are changing to a degree that we haven't seen in a very long time. You know, we've talked a lot about structural economic change uh, on here, but there's also structural political change happening, political realignment, you know, the different coalitions that the different parties uh, are predicated on are changing, albeit slowly right now. We're kind of in the middle of it. There's a sense that uh, amongst traditional members of different coalitions that their coalition doesn't really suit them that much. And the leaders of those coalitions don't really understand that disenchantment and aren't really, really chasing it. You know, they're not really uh, changing their rhetoric and positions to try to reflect that, to try to maintain the coalition. So that's a disequilibrium that's going to have to work out. And that's pretty much why things are so unstable right now politically is because that realignment has not completed yet. We don't really have a set of new coalitions in place where there's clear dividing lines between the different coalitions and what they stand for and a clear quid pro quo, a clear set of trade-offs between different interest groups within coalitions that bind them together into coalitions that can be expected to last, you know, that can kind of stand the test of time, at least to the short to medium term. So that's a rough snapshot of where U.S. politics is right now, and also kind of a snapshot of where most uh, developed nations are in terms of their politics. This is not something unique to the United States. This is one hell of a tangent. Let me bring this back to uh, the democratic nomination process. Uh, let's see. So who is in the democratic party's coalition right now? So four main groups, urban professionals, 
you know, that's the big one that the party shifted to in the 1970s. These are people who are urbanites, the relatively well-educated, uh, medium to high incomes, uh, not, I wouldn't say suburbanites per se, but uh, they're people who live in areas like that, you know, gentrifying neighborhoods and that kind of thing. Uh, these are people who are socially active, socially conscious. They tend to be socially liberal, uh, often very much so. And uh, also pretty economically liberal, although kind of a mixed bag there. That's not really where the core of the Sanders left-wing constituency lays. Uh, but urban professionals are definitely a big part of the coalition. Uh, another part is minorities. Generally, these are African-American uh, or what's the appropriate term here? Uh, Hispanic, let's say. I think Latinx is technically like the new correct term. Uh, someone in chat can correct. Yeah, I've heard that before. Uh, Hispanic, uh, Latinx, uh, Latin American. Um, there's, I think there's more. To, I, I, there's another one that I'm forgetting. I feel like I can't. It's like on the tip of my tongue. Asian. Asian. Are you listing off more different demographics or different words for the same demographic? Different words for the same demographic. I feel like there's one I'm forgetting, but I can't quite place it. Well, regardless, uh, that's. Well, I'm slipping here because the term, whatever you want to call that group, Latinx or Hispanic or whatever, that's actually kind of a, a very diverse group. It's not a monolithic group. So uh, those of you outside the United States who might be listening, that's I would uh, emphasize that point. It's uh, relatively more of that group supports the Democratic Party, but there's actually a very large minority of them who support the Republican Party who are conservative. And, uh, you know, those differences are geographic. You know, they can, there's a very large community of people who are descended from Cubans, for example, in the United States. That's one part of that community. And then there's a large community of uh, Dominican-descended people up in the northeastern U.S. and a large community of Puerto Rican-descended people, I think mostly also in the northeastern U.S. And then, of course, in California and Texas, we have a lot of people who are descended from uh, Mexicans and Central Americans of one sort or another, you know, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Hondurans, etc. So it's a very broad-based, diverse group. You know, Cubans tend to be relatively well-off. Uh, the Domin Dominicans tend to be urbanites. Uh, the Mexicans and Central Americans tend to be, uh, well, Mexicans, It's they've been moving up the social ladder, so they're not really poor anymore. A lot of them have moved in the middle class, but Central Americans are more recent and they tend to be more blue collar, low wage labor in the U S. So it's a very diverse group with divergent interests. So that's a point worth remembering. So understand when I say that the democratic party, uh, a core constituency for the democratic party is minorities. When I say that, I don't mean that all minorities support, uh, the democratic party, but relatively more do, uh, African Americans are kind of an exception here since like 90% of them tend to vote for, uh, the democratic nominee for president. I think uh, I think ninety percent or eighty eight percent or something like that was the proportion who voted for uh, Clinton in the twenty sixteen presidential election. So that's a very strong uh, voting block for the Democratic Party. But other minority groups tend to be more mixed. <clears throat> but regardless, that's another core constituency there for the Democratic Party. So urban professionals, minorities, and then you have uh, what I guess you could call the youth, the youth vote. Um, the youth vote is a little bit ephemeral. Uh, in general, young people tend to vote relatively more for Democrats. 
Uh, the trouble with them, though, is that they also don't tend to vote as much. Their voter turnout tends to be pretty eclectic. Uh, that is to say, inconsistent. Uh, generally, during the big elections uh, or big keystone elections, you know, like 2008 or uh, probably what's going to be 2020, they tend to turn out. The, the turnout tends to be much higher. But in elections where there doesn't really seem to be a lot at stake or where they don't have a candidate that really motivates them, turnout tends to be a bit lower. You know, maybe, that may be what part of what happened in 2016. Uh, regardless, the Democratic Party goes out of its way to try to appeal to younger voters because they see them as an important part of that coalition. And that's actually one of the reasons why the Democratic Party has generally been a little better about innovating uh, digital space. Uh, that is to say, political involvement in digital space. I remember way back, again, you know, way back in the day when I was in college, uh, the Democratic Party was the, well, there's only two, but the Democratic Party actually got involved online before the Republican Party. So the Republican Party did not have like a strong presence on um, dig.com, which was the big thing back in the day. And uh, they also started websites like moveon.org and uh, I'm sure there's others as well, but move on is the one I remember. So those are examples of digital activism, you know, digital involvement politically. And the Democratic Party did that well before the Republican Party. And uh, the reason that they invested relatively more resources is because young people were more digitally, digitally conscious. Uh, I think digital natives is the fancy term that marketers have for them. And so they wanted to try to uh, leverage their advantage with younger people by uh, investing in that space, since that's where they were. So that's an example of how important the youth vote is. So that's the third leg there. And uh, there's kind of also a fourth leg, and that this is kind of an amorphous one, uh, uh, reformers, what you could call, or socialists. Uh, this is sort of the far left of the party. And this, is, this isn't one that's really been, I think, traditionally cons- considered a core part of the constituency there, but political changes over the past 10 years have revealed an emergent far left in the United States. I don't think it's as, I don't think it's really powerful enough to really swing the party or be a major player per se. If they do get Bernie Sanders nominated, that would be their first big win. Uh, but, you know, you can't really deny at this point that they're a, a political force that has to be considered. So uh, a tentative example here of a constituency uh, an emergent one, I think, at the very least, you could say. So uh, for those of you maybe not familiar with the Democratic Party and who its uh, core constituents are, I hope this list kind of gives you an idea of why the Democratic Party does what it does, how it strategizes, etc., you know, who it's trying to appeal to uh, when it's out there campaigning. Uh, oh, you know what? I forgot unions. <laughs> I guess you could call this then the fifth one. Uh, unions are a traditional uh, voting support, uh, voting block for the Democratic Party. Uh, but they're also the one that's the most weak now. Uh, well, maybe not as weak as the emerging reformist group, but uh, they used to be the strongest one. You know, the Democratic Party used to be the party of workers, uh, but unions have been in decline uh, for the past couple decades and now a relatively small percentage of the U.S. workforce is in a union. So technically, the working man, quote unquote, or uh, unions more generally have been a core part of the Democratic Party's uh, voting bloc, but that's really started to change. And that's really a voting bloc that they've really started to lose to the Republican Party, uh, as a lot of those people have started to vote more uh, conservatively. Uh, 
I, you used to call you used to call them Reagan Democrats, people who were working class but who voted for Re- Ronald Reagan in the 1980s uh, because they were nationalists or you know patriotic, whatever whatever your preferred term would be. And uh, they wanted to they wanted a government that were was economically relatively liberal or would, would at least look out for their interests. Uh, which the Reagan administration actually kind of did. You can see that in the way that they treated Japan and the trade relationship. Uh, they kind of the Reagan administration kind of had a soft trade war with Japan in the eighties, and that was considered a return. Uh, that was more or less done in recognition of the support that uh, Reagan Democrats had given Reagan back in the day. So since then, that phenomena has continued unabated, and a big chunk of Trump supporters are people in that vein. So. There are people who used to vote for Democrats and maybe still do at a local level, but increasingly they vote for uh, conservative candidates that they see as being more in keeping with their uh, culture. You know, cultural issues are growing in importance, uh, but also they see them as being more uh, credible in terms of actually protecting their economic interests. You know, Democrats have promised this, that, and the other over time, but haven't really delivered much. Uh, but here's Donald Trump, who's actually acting on the things that he's promised to do for them. Uh, whether or not he's done anything substantive is another debate, but there is a general feeling that he's the first politician in a very long time who's actually done something uh, for the working class in the United States, uh, at the very least something really substantive. Not every working class person feels like that in the United States, but there's enough of them to make that an unreliable voting block for the Democratic Party now. So that's a long-term trend that's a trend that's been playing out, and it kind of seems to be reaching its end point. So technically, the unions are a core part of the constituency, but they're increasingly an unimportant one. Okay, so that said, who are the man, main candidates running for the Democratic nomination? Uh, so as you can probably guess, given the what we've been talking about today and over the past couple months, Uh, there's left candidates and there's centrist candidates. That's the most general way uh, you can generalize them. So the left candidates are, as you can guess, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Bernie Sanders, for the uninitiated, uninitiated, uh, is a self-described socialist, which is very rare in American politics. So socialism has kind of been a dirty word for a very long time in the United States. Uh, Bernie Sanders is unusual, uh, not only in being a self-described socialist, but having been one almost his entire career. Uh, he was able to win office, I think, as a senator uh, for the state of New Hampshire. And, you know, up there in New Hampshire and Vermont, uh, they're kind of known for having their own sort of politics going on. They're relatively conservative on a lot of things, uh, but they tend to be liberal on other things in a way that uh, other areas are not. Um that's probably poor wording on my part. Let me rephrase that. Uh, I guess a simpler way to put it is that they tend to be fiscally conservative, uh, but socially liberal in general. That's sort of a that's sort of a rough representation of the mix between conservatism and liberalism there. So there tends to be more tolerance for things like uh, libertarianism or uh, socialism. So Bernie Sanders was able to pick up uh, a Senate seat there. I think it was a Senate seat. You know, please correct me if I'm getting this wrong. This would be a good time for the usual disclaimer. I'm not an expert in everything I talk about, uh, as I'm sure I've made abundantly clear many times over the years. Uh, so if I say anything, so if I say anything wrong, stupid, or biased, 
Uh, Chad is encouraged to point it out. You know, if I'm wrong, I want to know more than anybody. And this isn't meant to be an interactive experience. I don't read chat while we do this, but I will read it later. So I will see your comments eventually. So, you know, please do contribute in chat in that vein. <clears throat> so Bernie Sanders then has been in politics for decades. And the entire time he's been in politics, he has been consistently, he has voted very consistently on a number of issues and he's never wavered from his uh, status as a self-described socialist. So that appeals to a lot of people who, you know, kind of like what I was talking about earlier, uh, in contrast to Bernie Sanders is someone like Hillary Clinton, uh, who's a consummate political operator who plays the game, who tries to, you know, drum up donors, who tries to uh, have rallies, you know, who, who do, well, I guess rallies isn't that big a deal, but uh, you get the idea. You know, she operated a political machine uh, that tried to hit all the right buttons and tick all the right boxes to try to generate political support and uh, work the system in her favor. And uh, that worked for a long time, but now we're kind of entering an era where that's not very popular. So in sharp contrast to Hillary Clinton and the way she approached politics, Bernie Sanders was much more of an idealist. You know, he firmly believed in the things that he talked about uh, and the things that he said he believed. And he consistently has done that over the course of his career. And now that's a very stark contrast. And that's really what, uh, well, that's one of the major appeals. Uh, another major appeal, though, is that he's uh, unabashedly radical in his political campaign platform. Uh, he's talking about Medicare for all, uh, wealth taxes, uh, reserving seats on corporate boards for representatives of labor, uh, pretty substantive changes that he's proposing there. You know, it's almost Corbinite in its ambition. Um, Corbinite is reference to Jeremy Corbyn, the head of the Labour Party in the UK. And he's, he's also known for being uh, very far left and uh, offering up far left policies uh, in his campaign platform. So that's a rough snapshot of Bernie Sanders and, you know, what he stands for. So then his principal opponent for the uh, affection and loyalty of the left wing of the Democratic Party is Elizabeth Warren. And she's a little bit to the right of Sanders. You know, she's more of a technocrat. Uh, she does lob, you know, she does uh, want taxes on things like, well, well, at least she says she wants wealth taxes and uh, basically increases in taxes to pay for more social spending generally. You know, a lot of the same things that Bernie Sanders want. But her approach to politics is a little more technocratic, you know, and she has a long career uh, in technocratic roles. She's act she is actually the principal architect of the, uh, I think it's called the Consumer Protection Bureau uh, of the federal government here in the United States, which was drawn up after the 2008 financial crisis uh, to try to create an agency within the government that purposely went out of its way to try to prevent abuses uh, or at least uh, distortions like that, which happened in the housing market, specifically the fraud, you know, mortgage fraud, which was one of the contributing factors to the 08 financial crisis. But it was also uh, given a broad remit to try to address fraud of most any sort as in so much as it related to consumers. So Elizabeth Warren was one of the principal designers of that, and she was originally going to head it, but she kind of fell victim to that partisan uh, rhetoric and partisan atmosphere in Washington during the Obama administration. So she, her nomination to be the first head was, uh, I believe, stymied. She was, she was not given the opportunity, but she stayed involved in politics and kind of leveraged the political friction that generated with her failed nomination uh, to get into politics. And I think she, I don't remember what it was she did. I don't remember if she was a senator or a house rep. I'm sure chat, somebody in chat probably knows. 
Uh, but she was able to win a seat and stay in politics and keep her name sort of in the game. And uh, since then, she's tried to uh, leverage her past as a technocrat to try to win uh, leftist voters. That is to say, the left wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, she's kind of known for having a plan for everything. You know, that's part of her technocratic appeal. She she's very deliberately gone out of her way to draw plans for different things. I haven't had the chance to kind of look at all of them, so I can't really judge whether or not their actual plans are just quote unquote plans. Uh, but regardless, it's part of her image uh, that she is a planner. So Bernie Sanders is more the idealist and Warren is more the technocrat. Uh, pick your poison, as it were. So for those unfamiliar with that uh, wing of the party, that's sort of where they are right now. So then that brings us to the centrist part of the party. And that party is split between three candidates at this point. Now, the leader right now is Joe Biden. So Joe Biden was vice president during Obama. He didn't want to run for president in 2016. Um, you know, he may actually have wanted to, but wanted, but didn't want to uh, upset the party since there was kind of a consensus that Clinton deserved it, quote unquote. So there may have been something there on that count. But regardless, he's running now. And he's very much running for the centrist uh, part of the party, the centrist voters in the party. So his principal claim to fame is having been vice president during the Obama administration. And the Obama administration is still pretty popular with a lot of left-wing voters. Uh, well, maybe I should say Democratic voters. <clears throat> and uh, let me see here. So, I mean, it's... We're reading in the chat here that he didn't run in 2016 because his child died. That's right. I forgot about that. So, thank you for the so correction. just making way for Hillary. There were other mm -hmm. personal things. But they do have a lot of overlap because you're saying that he's the centrist one. And when I think of the 2016 cycle, that's what Hillary was. She was the establishment Democrat yeah. who is closer to the center than Bernie. Yeah, Joe Biden's a little bit different, though, because one of Joe Biden's big political advantages has always been that he's, shall we say, folksy. You know, he has an appeal with the common man. And uh, he's one, I mean, he's a former senator, you know, so it's not, I think he's a former senator anyway. He had either a rep or a senator. I want to say senator. Regardless, uh, he's been able to leverage his appeal with the common you know, however you want to frame that, common man, blue collar worker, whatever, he's been able to leverage that into political success. And he's kind of been banking on that with his current run uh, for the presidency. So his common man approach, his, uh, his common man appeal, the fact that he was vice president of a popular administration, <clears throat> those are the cornerstones of his campaign thus far. Uh, he, has, he also has a relatively high appeal amongst African-American voters, uh, which is a big advantage because, again, that's one of the core voting blocks for the Democratic Party. And uh, that's actually what revived his campaign just recently. I'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but that's an advantage for him and for the party. Uh, one of his problems, though, is that he's known for being uh, what's called gaffy prone. You know, uh, gaffs are, is it gaffy or gaff? I'm not sure. I don't know. What does it mean? Um, like putting your foot in your mouth, so to speak, like making a mistake, you know, uh, saying something, but having trying to say something, but saying it in a wrong way that gets reinterpreted and in a very negative way. Uh, he's known for doing that a lot. So he's not, he's not the best speaker. Let's put it like that. So that's one of his disadvantages, but I don't know that it's too much of a disadvantage in the grand scheme of things. 
<clears throat> I think a bigger problem he has is that his politics are not that substantive. His campaign is not predicated on substantive policy change, etc. It's more of a boilerplate campaign of the sort that's been run for a long time now. I don't see a lot of the uh, passion or uh, creativity or innovation that you can see in some of the other campaigns. But regardless, he's the front runner amongst the moderate candidates at this point, or the centrist candidates, whatever, however you want to frame that. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is the is the other, uh, well, is another uh, major moderate candidate running. Um, he's very explicitly targeting uh, that vote, that the moderate vote, quote unquote. Um, Joe Biden right now is basically just running to get the nomination. He's very strategically focused on that. But Pete Buttigieg kind of weighs in on that overarching conversation about whether it's better to have a moderate nominee or a left nominee by very much trying to cultivate an image, a political image, as a moderate. So above and beyond what Joe Biden has done, Pete Buttigieg is really, really trying hard uh, to be a moderate centrist candidate of the sort that could hypothetically win uh, the presidency. <clears throat> as per the logic of people who want a moderate candidate. So the reason I frame it like that is that uh, he's running a, ca a campaign that's also kind of boilerplate, but it's also really trying to hit uh, certain targets. Uh, for example, he's a very well-credentialed candidate. You know, I'm not explaining this great, but you know, you know bear with me. Uh, he's a well-credentialed candidate in the sense that he's one, uh, gay, two, he's a veteran, uh, three, he was the mayor of a Rust Belt city. So all of those are important boxes to tick for a hypothetical Democratic nominee. Uh, obviously, LGBT issues are important to the Democratic Party and to a lot of social activists. Uh, so the fact that he's gay is a plus for them. He can kind of appeal to that group. Uh, the fact that he's a veteran means he can appeal to uh, Reagan Democrat sorts of voters, you know, that sort of a Rust Belt type of voter. And the fact that he was the mayor of a Rust Belt city also ties into that. So he ticks a lot of the boxes that you would have to tick in order to appeal uh, to a moderate sort of voter of the kind that people who want a moderate candidate for the Democratic Party want to appeal to. There's a sense that if they can win back enough of the voters, uh, enough of the Reagan Democrat type of voters, they lost to Trump in 2016, then they could win in 2020. So Pete Buttigieg is basically a candidate who's almost genetically designed, you know, almost scientifically engineered to be that guy. So whereas Joe Biden's principal claim to fame is his past, you know, the fact that he was a part of a previous administration, Pete Buttigieg has more credentials as somebody uh, who's done something. Although his career is a little slack, you know, Joe Biden has a lot more experience working in Congress, whereas Pete Buttigieg has never been at a national level. He's only ever been a mayor. I, I don't know what I can't I don't know what city it was. It slips my mind. Maybe somebody in chat knows what city he was a mayor of. Uh, but the fact that he's only ever been a mayor is one of the criticisms of him, that maybe he's not ready for the big time yet. <clears throat> so that's uh, sort of the big difference. So th those are some of the differences, at least as I'm familiar with them anyway, between Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg. And so they're the principal competition for that moderate centrist vote in the Democratic Party. Sorry to interrupt you. Can someone please type his name out so I can try to pronounce it? Because people are laughing at your pronunciation, saying it sounds like he's Booty Judge. He's the mayor of Booty Town. Anytime you say anything that sounds rem remotely like Booty, it's Twitch.tv. If it's Djibouti, <laughs> then they're just going to say Djibouti with the gasm face. It's just how it is. Well, I think it's pronounced Booty Edge, but uh, I guess I could be wrong. 
That's uh, that's what I thought. I was trying to learn how to pronounce his name earlier. I was looking up. Uh... He dropped out of the race today. Oh, did he? Okay, I hadn't yeah. seen that. Boot Judge. Booty Judge. Well, anyway, those are two the two main centrist candidates. There's also another centrist candidate named Amy. I'm going to mispronounce her name for sure. Amy Klobuchar, I think it is. And I'm not as familiar with her. I actually don't. I actually forgot to go and do background research on her. But uh, she doesn't have a national, strong national profile. I think she was a senator. No, not a senator. She was a state level politician in Minnesota. I think it was. You know, somebody can correct me on that. I I don't have the details. I didn't look too much into her because she's easily the weakest of the three moderate candidates. And she's just hanging on by the skin of her teeth. Um, I don't suppose maybe she's dropped out now, too. That would kind of make sense if Buttigieg has dropped out. Or uh, Buttigieg. Buttigieg. I'm going to trip over that all night. The chat typed out 16 different things, so I have no idea what it is. We'll call call Mr. Booty Judge. Okay. So those are your three moderate candidates then, Biden, Booty Judge, and Klobuchar. Uh, it's looking like uh, Biden is probably going to come away with it. Uh, if Buttigieg has dropped out, then that, that kind of suggests that Biden's going to be the centrist's guy. Now, that said, there's also a third group besides centrists and left voters, uh, left-wing candidates. And uh, these are sort of the dark horse candidates. And these guys are basically the two billionaires uh, who decided to join the race uh, of their own accord. They kind of bought their way in, basically. <laughs> they joined late, but uh, they were able to get in the good graces of the DNC. And also, they you know, did all the paperwork and yeah, paid all that expense without any party support. You know, They have the resources to do it without any party support, so not too much of a problem. Uh, one of them is a guy named Steyer, and I really don't know much about him. He hasn't been doing too well, although he's been polling well amongst, uh, I think, African-Americans? Was it? I think I read that somewhere recently, but otherwise his numbers haven't been great thus far. But uh, the main one is Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York City. He actually has not been running in the primaries uh, thus far. He's waiting to run for in what's called Super Tuesday, which is when the big states like Texas and I think California have their primaries. And there's a lot more delegates. You know, uh, maybe I should explain that. At the Democratic National Convention, where the Democratic nominee is nominated officially to be the Democratic Party's candidate for the presidency uh, for the 2020 election for president, uh, delegates from every state convene at the uh, convention and they all vote for uh, the candidate they want. Now, for much of the past couple decades, that's kind of been more for show than anything because generally after Uh, the first couple primaries or over the course of the primary process, there's only one candidate left, you know, all the others will drop out. So then by the time the convention actually happens, there's only one guy to vote for. So it's mostly an infomercial. Then they'll have a big horse and pony show uh, where they have their candidate out and they have him talk about this, that, and the other, and they have his supporters and it's a big thing. It's a big uh, circus basically. But in 2016, and actually, well, actually, 2008, like I was talking about, there was tension between Clinton and Obama, and there actually were some people who voted for Clinton uh, as part of a sort of deal. And then in 2016, there's a lot of people who wanted to vote for Sanders. And so even though Clinton ended up getting it, 
uh, Sanders had some holdout voters of his own. So now, given how contentious and unsettled the debate is within the Democratic Party about just how uh, about who should you know who the nominee should be, there's actually a lot of strategy going on as far as winning delegates in the primaries this time. Because when you win delegates in a primary, uh, those delegates are then going to go to the convention and vote for you. So it's actually important to win as many delegates as you can if there is a competitive process, as there is now, so that when the convention happens, uh, you can win, basically. Um, I'm a little hesitant to say that it's decided in the primaries itself, because obviously people can change their vote later. Uh, But given that there is an open field, so to speak, uh, winning delegates is actually an open question, important now in this election cycle, because it who the nominee comes down to, and this is an important point, uh, who the nominee for the Democratic Party could well come down to the convention, which has not happened in decades. It could well come down to a convention floor fight between delegates for different people uh, as selected in the primary process. So that's why the primaries are uniquely important this year, because uh, whoever has the most delegates is going delegates is going to win that nomination at the convention. I was a little all over the place, but I hope I hope I kind of made the point there. <clears throat> so the primary person who wins their party's nomination is decided in a different way this year? It's not decided in a different way. It's decided in the same way every year. Every state has a certain number of delegates assigned to it uh, based on population. I think that's the point I skipped. I'm sorry. Every state has a certain number of delegates that... Uh, are allocated uh, two different candidates according to their performance in a primary or caucus. There's technically a difference, but basically that's the way it works. And so eventually every state has their primary slash caucus, and then their delegates are allocated accordingly. And then they go to the convention at the end of the process and they all vote for their preferred candidate. So that's how the nominee is selected. And that that's the way it's always worked. But historically, candidates have dropped out of the process before the process was completed until there was only one left. And so then the convention uh, delegates, delegates at the convention didn't have anybody to vote for, but the one candidate. So it was more of a formality. And it, I see. So he's working around that formality. He's not going to follow suit and just dip out. He's going to show up and see what happens. That's what it's looking like. It's looking like, uh, well, I mean, there's an overarching thread here. That norm has been weakening. So, for example, Hillary Clinton didn't want to drop out in 2008. So that's an example of weakening that norm. And then Bernie Sanders didn't want to drop out in 2016. So that's another example of the norm weakening. So then they had there had to be this sort of negotiation uh, just to try to placate the Sanders campaign. The reason they had they didn't have to negotiate an agreement wherein a certain number of delegates uh, would vote for their guy. They could have uh, just let delegates vote for whoever they wanted. But the reason they wanted to stage manage it was because they didn't want bitterness going into the election. You know, they wanted to try to placate the different actors involved, specifically uh, Clinton in 08 and then Sanders in 2016, so that their specific followers would not feel so butthurt that they didn't turn out to vote. Oh, yeah. So I think I understand the concept pretty well. And Ragnarok is talking about the principle for it. Basically, you want to increase party unity and build momentum through the primaries rather than get into a nasty fight in the primaries that makes the party like really upset at each other. Yeah. They need to be focusing their energy on beating the opposing party rather than 
like fighting each other and wasting too much energy. Yeah, that's a much better summary. Thank you, Ragnarok. Uh, yeah, that's the gist of it. You know, it's uh, really meant to be. Uh, well, going into the convention, you want to have party unity so that the convention can just be all about positive energy and you know make trying to get people to turn out to vote in the election, but the norm has been weakening such that it's been more and more competitive. And now this year, it seems that the norm may have been annihilated, in which case you could have a convention where you have multiple candidates competing for that vote, in which case uh, we'll see some real actual politicking at the convention like the, like what used to happen way back in the mid 20th century, you know, back when politics was done in backroom deals by uh, movers and shakers. We could be going back to that ironically. Ironic, given that it's a populist moment we're in. So that being the case, if given that it's possible that uh, the nomination process could come to that, it's important for the different delegates uh, to get as many votes as they can in the primaries. Uh, that is, Well, sorry, to get as many delegates as they can in the primary process to maximize their chances in the, in the convention when it happens. <clears throat> so all of that... <laughs> All of that just stemmed from me talking about Michael Bloomberg. Uh, on Super Tuesday, the biggest states with the most delegates in the process has their primaries. And Michael Bloomberg has strategically decided not to dedicate resources to running for the smaller states that hold primaries earlier than Super Tuesday. He's focusing all in on California, Texas, etc., because he thinks maybe he can win big there and get a lot of delegates to maximize his chances. Now, Michael Bloomberg's, now that said, Michael Bloomberg's politics are very much center left. He fancies himself a moderate. Uh, so he's kind of a New York Northeastern uh, fiscal conservative, socially liberal kind of guy. And he's very much of the vein, he's very much of the opinion that in order for the Democratic Party to win, it has to move towards the center to try to get back the voters it lost to Trump in 2016. And in fact, that's, I think, from what I remember reading, that logic is the main reason that he decided to enter the race. He felt like the race uh, was not going to generate a sufficiently centrist candidate to guarantee that a moderate candidate would win. And he believed that if a moderate candidate did not win, then they would lose in 2020. So Michael Bloomberg then jumped in, in order, and uh, his strategy, again, is focusing on Super Tuesday. Uh, so the interesting thing about Michael Bloomberg, though, is that he doesn't necessarily think from what I've read anyway, I don't know this for sure, but I've read that he may not actually think that he's going, has a chance to actually win the nomination. It may be that he's just running in order to get delegates uh, for the convention so that uh, he can kind of pawn them off. You know, he can create a coalition with other moderate candidates, delegates, or maybe he can kind of have a negotiated deal in the convention where he commits his delegates uh, in exchange for something. So, you know, again, old school politics, quid pro quo style. <clears throat> what does he want? Because I saw a graph of the different net worth of people in the running. And part of the reason it was posted was just because he's like orders of magnitude above Trump. People made comments about Trump being a very wealthy person to run for president relative to most of the other candidates. But this is like a whole different ballpark. Yeah. And a lot of people ask the question, you have this much money why do you choose to run for president? It's a really big responsibility. Is it fun? Like, what do you want? Power? Like, you're a legend? Well, I think, uh, I think that push for moderate, moderating the Democratic Party is more what he has in mind. 
even if he can't really win, you know, just running as a possible alternative uh, for people who might vote for Sanders or Warren uh, in favor. You know, maybe they don't like Sanders or Warren, but they vote for them because they don't like any of the other moderate candidates. But maybe then they'll vote for Bloomberg because they see him as a stronger moderate candidate. So I think that's more uh, the logic behind the run. You know, rich people can be involved in politics, too. It's not as though they're having money detaches you from politics. There's certainly a vested interest there economically, but also just socially and, you know, politically. People, you know, being rich doesn't <laughs> absolve you of uh, responsibility as a citizen from being participating in the political process. And uh, Michael Bloomberg, I think, mentioned himself that he had not thought that a billionaire could really one, run for president because of the problems with uh, com- conflicts of interest, etc., and hadn't really ever thought of it before until Trump was elected, at which point that logic was proven moot. <laughs> you know, obviously, a billionaire can win. So in that case, why not run? So, you know, that uh, another factor then is that uh, the block that had been preventing him from running, running was removed, in a sense. So that's another reason that he's decided to run this year. But that's a quick and dirty rundown rundown of the main candidates. Uh, let's see. So then briefly looking at the primaries that have happened thus far, uh, Moody Edge, however you want to pronounce that name, I apologize to him. I'm trying. Uh, Moody Edge performed pretty strongly in Iowa. Uh, so there was some talk about him maybe taking over the mantle of main moderate candidate. Uh, New Hampshire, after that, saw Sanders uh, do really well. He, he won that one. So that kind of brought him to the forefront of that leftist, candi- leftist camp of candidates between himself and Warren. And then uh, South Carolina recently saw Biden win out. He was the main winner. And that being the case, then... That suggests that maybe Booty Edge doesn't have a lock on it. And since he's stepped down now, obviously, then that suggests that Biden is going to be the main candidate for the centrist camp of Democratic voters in the Democratic Party. So that kind of solves, you know, that answers that question of who the centrist candidate is going to be, although there is still Bloomberg and Steyer to consider. Uh, But again, I don't know that they necessarily, even themselves, really think that they're going to get the going to become that candidate. Regardless, the strong showing in South Carolina kind of really uh, rejuvenated Biden's campaign. He performed pretty poorly in Iowa and New Hampshire. And so there was a sense that if he didn't do well in South Carolina, he might have to drop out. But he has done well, partly on the back of his support amongst African-American voters. So that's the quick summary there. Uh, Sanders is right. saying Steyer dropped out as well. Steyer dropped out as well. Okay, I'm learning (laughs) I'm learning. Is this stuff that happened today? I didn't see that when I was reading the news earlier today. Yeah, I think stuff happens today. I'm reading the chat. So there have been a few corrections. Like if stuff is happening the day of, he's not always going to be prepped to the very last second when we go live. So we're we're open to those points of feedback. We're not going to be able to catch all of them. So Well, that's certainly, uh, that's certainly clarifying then. So then I guess then... I don't have notes on this, obviously, but I'm going to infer then that the centrist uh, vote, centrist voters then are going to have to decide between Biden and Bloomberg and that the two of them are going to compete for votes. Uh, and then for the left wing, I haven't. nobody said that Warren has dropped out yet, so I'm guessing that's 
she's still in the game. So then uh, the question of who the leftist candidate is going to be is up in the air still, either Warren or Sanders. But given Sanders' strong showing thus far, it looks increasingly likely that it's going to be him. Uh, so let's see. So that could mean there's going to be a showdown between Sanders uh, later on in the process, or maybe even at the convention, a showdown between Sanders and I'm going to guess Biden, possibly Bloomberg, but uh, maybe Bloomberg forms some kind of coalition. If he doesn't have, if he has fewer delegates than Biden, then he'll probably align with Biden in exchange for something, you know, some political deal. I don't, when I say political deal, I don't mean like, you know, corruption per se. I mean, it may be that Bloomberg has a very particular style of politics or a particular political platform or some, something, something in that vein that he wants Biden to do that he thinks he needs to do in order to appeal to moderate voters more and to have a better chance at winning in the general. And so that may be what he has in mind then uh, by trying to gather up candidates but he could win still. So maybe, I mean, outside chance, I think, but hypothetically Bloomberg could get it. So Sanders versus Biden slash uh, Biden slash Bloomberg at the convention. It seems to be shaping up to be like that with booty edge out. I don't think I, I haven't read anything about Kluberger, but I don't think she's doing any better. And then uh, Steyer has dropped out now. So that, that seems to be the dynamic we have then Sanders versus Biden Bloomberg. Do you think Bloomberg is going to get a lot of the same pull that Trump got for being a person who's not a career politician? No. In the same way? <laughs> no? No, because Bloomberg has been in politics. That's the big difference. He's been mayor of New York City before, and he was for a pretty long time, I think. What, two terms, I guess? And so he has, he has an established political track record. When was that? It wasn't too long ago. I think he was the, pre- he was the mayor before uh, de Blasio came in. Okay, three terms, so I'm just coming at this from the wrong angle. Why is he so rich? <laughs> he has a media empire, if memory serves. He has Bloomberg TV, among other things. I'm not super I'm familiar with how he originally got wealthy, so I don't know if he started with the media empire or if he did something else and got wealthy and then built the media empire. He has a news channel called Bloomberg TV and a online news outlet. I'm not sure what to call that. It's called a news website also called Bloomberg, that does, uh, I think they tend to specialize more in business news, financial news, but they also do general news as well. I think he had to do some kind of, uh, well, no, I don't think he did either. There was some conflict of interests, criticisms that he was having his news channel support him or avoid reporting on him or the election, some damn thing. I don't remember exactly what, maybe somebody in chat knows what I'm talking about, if I don't sound too crazy anyway. They're saying that he developed a software to aggregate information for investors, which is how his capital began. He did three terms as mayor of New York, the stop and frisk mayor. (laughs) Yeah. And he bought his third term. And they're saying he's a bit of a scumbag. Well, I've heard that. You know, he was, uh, (laughs) yeah, there's uh, one of his things in uh, office in New York City was to try to crack down on crime. And the stop and frisk policy where police arbitrarily stop people and frisk them for weapons, that was uh, one of the ways that they tried to approach that problem. And it was immensely controversial because the police profiled people and disproportionately they would stop people who were uh, African-American or of a minority background. Uh, I guess people of color is the term being used nowadays. So that was immensely controversial at that time. And he's taken a lot of heat for that. 
But uh, that's the only, I'm sure there's other criticisms of him, but that's the only one that I'm familiar with. No, there's another criticism. He outlawed the big gulp. <laughs> I guess you can't get a beverage of that size. Really? I thought de Blasio did that. Oh, did he? Oh, I'm, I'm, well, I mean, chat probably know better than I would, so I expect probably it was him then. It sounds like something de Blasio would do. De Blasio is definitely more of that style of politics, but I wouldn't put it past Bloomberg either. You know, Bloomberg was very much, uh, I guess, I don't want to call him pragmatic per se, because that's almost a compliment, but that was more his approach to politics. He wasn't an ideologue. He wasn't explicitly a leftist or a right-wing candidate. Uh, in fact, I think he ran as an independent, if memory serves, when he was a uh, mayor of New York City. You know, I'm sure, ch- again, chat probably knows better than I do. But that's kind of his style. He fancies himself a moderate politician. So that's sort of his approach. Cool. I learned a lot about Bloomberg. Well, we'll probably be learning more soon since he's coming out as a leading candidate. There's probably going to be a lot more attacks on him. I think the latest attack actually was based on the, uh, was related to the stop and frisk thing because there was some audio of or audio recording of him talking about uh, how in order to crack down on crime, they had to uh, take the weapons out, out of the hands of the criminals. And most of the criminals he said were minorities. And so obviously that <laughs> that's a sensitive subject. <clears throat> yeah, he's taken a lot of heat for that recently. And obviously, as Chat pointed out, he's taken heat for that sort of thing before. So it's a vulnerable area for him. But we'll see where it goes. There's probably going to be more stuff like that coming out before too long, and it remains to be seen how damaging it is. It'll probably be a lot more damaging in the Democratic nomination than it would be in the general, since you're running against Trump. So (laughs) Trump has a pretty long laundry list of uh, stuff like that in his past. So I don't know that uh, people in glass houses can throw stones, I think is the phrase. Anyway, that's the snapshot of the Democratic nomination process as it stands right now. So we've covered two things thus far, <laughs> and we're already two hours in. Where are we? Well, what are we? What is it? It's uh, oh, an hour thirty-eight. Okay, that's not too bad. All right, let's see then. Did we have any questions yet? There was a nice comment for you. Yeah, I did see that. Thank you very much for that. That's very sweet. Oh, we did have a question. Okay. Is there a measurable way to predict how hard COVID-19 will continue to disrupt the global economy? The world's second biggest economy spending 2020 closed for business, coupled with the rise of just-in-time supply lines, seems like a disaster waiting to happen. Hmm. Short answer, no. (laughs) There's not really any uh, solid way to predict how hard COVID-19 will hit. Actually, that's something I had in my notes because last week somebody was asking me how disruptive I thought it would be. And I said that it probably would be disruptive in the short term, but then the medium to long term, probably not too much of a problem. It'll probably burn itself out in a couple of months. I think I have to revise that answer at this point because stock markets all over the world over the past week sold off. And a total of $6 trillion of value was lost 
and it was lost principally on expectations of losses stemming from the continuing spread of the COVID virus. Pretty substantive change in market expectations there. Markets had been pretty blasé about the COVID virus uh, over the past couple months, but all of a sudden it seems like uh, markets expect there to be much bigger problems. And I think uh, I think that has to do with how much it's spreading. You know, when it was just China, there was more of a sense that it would be localized there and that maybe its expansion would be controlled. But now it's starting to pop up in Iran, South Korea, Japan, Iran. Uh, oh, sorry, I said uh, Italy, I meant. You know, Iran, Italy, South Korea, Japan, etc. There's cases in the United States now, so... Uh, it really seems like it's uh, spreading pretty quickly and that it's not going to, it's go- if it's going to be stopped, it's going to be difficult. But uh, it seems relatively more likely than markets were expecting uh, that it's going to spread all over the world and be disruptive to economies all over the world. And I think uh, markets had not priced that expectation in before. And over this piece, this past week, they have been, and it's been very expensive. Uh, $6 trillion is a lot of dough. So unfortunately, I don't think that there is any good way to predict just how disruptive it will be because it's, a, it's difficult to say uh, how successful different governments will be in controlling it. And the, even then, it's difficult to predict what expectations are amongst general publics. Uh, that's going to be the more important consideration because uh, even if the virus is not that lethal, you know, it is dangerous. And I was reading that it apparently does damage to lungs, which I wasn't aware of, but uh, different things like that. You know, even if uh, it's not lethal, it can still do damage. And even if it's not lethal and doesn't do damage, the expectation that it is amongst the public affects people's economic decision making, such that even the expectation that it's dangerous could have economic, economically disruptive effects. So that's why then markets freaked out because, <laughs> you know, That's why markets freaked out, and that's why there's no good answer to exactly how disruptive it's going to be. It's basically impossible to predict uh, how different publics are going to react to it because we don't know what their expectations are. Expectations are not something you can really quantify, and so therein lies the rub. So, you know, if a given economy, if workers of a given economy don't expect the virus to be too much of a problem, then maybe they don't hedge against it too much. So they keep showing up to work, they keep consuming, etc., in which case that economy is not going to suffer too much. But if the people in another economy were to panic because they had expectations that the virus was a much bigger problem than maybe is being let on, that economy is going to suffer a lot more. So the fact that you can't predict that is specifically what markets are concerned about, in part, you know, among other things. So unfortunately, there's no good answer to that question. There's no good way to predict that, and that's probably going to lead itself. The fact that that question is itself unanswerable is itself one of the reasons that there's going to be economic disruption. Well, we even saw some of it in the StarCraft scene. A lot of events were pushed back, mainly events in South Korea Mm -hmm. due to that. It's even taken our (laughs) esports. No. Yeah, it's been proliferating and probably will continue to do so. Yeah, I was talking with a Chinese friend and they were telling me that uh, a lot of people in China are very afraid of it. They're very concerned by it. So there's a sense then that uh, they're going to continue avoiding work and and by extension, avoiding consumption. So the Chinese economy could be affected uh, 
for a good deal longer. They were telling me that even if the new rates of new infections continue to decline, they could actually uh, bump up again later once people start coming back to work just because it's so contagious. Right now, people are kind of in lockdown in a lot of places. So new infections are not uh, increasing that much. But once the government says, okay, all clear, go back, that could lead to a new bloom, you know, a new increase in infections once you start seeing more people out and about exposing themselves. Yeah, my friend had an interesting insight that I hadn't really thought of. Um, China had been afflicted with something similar called SARS uh, 20-some years ago. And the interesting thing there that they told me is that uh, SARS was actually pretty lethal, relatively speaking, but it wasn't very contagious. So it ended up being much more controlled, you know, after the start anyway, obviously, the government's initial initial response was not great uh, as far as SARS goes, but later on, it more or less got, they more or less got it under control. But with this virus, the COVID virus, it's not that lethal, not nearly as much so as SARS, but it's way more contagious, and that's creating problems of expectations, like I was talking about before. The fact that it's relatively, I don't want to say easy to catch, but the fact that it's spreading so so quickly is creating. Uh, it's unnerving a lot of people in a way that's making them want to hedge against catching it by staying home and not working and et cetera. <clears throat> so in that sense, it's uh, a lot more impactful just by dint of its impact on expectations than the SARS virus ever was. So China is probably going to continue to be impacted for a while, longer than I expected at first. Uh how deeply they'll be impacted and just how much damage there will be is an open question. Some people are saying that this brings to light, uh, you know, government incompetence in China and that people are upset and that, you know, it's really going to put a lot of political pressure on the government. I don't think that's true. I think we talked a little, we might've talked about that last week. I don't quite remember, but in general, the Chinese public is generally, I said generally twice in general, the Chinese public is very willing to give their government the benefit of the doubt. Generally, they blame problems on local officials, uh, but give the national government credit and give them lots of uh, room to maneuver, so to speak, when it comes to problems like this. I've heard that uh, people don't blame the national level government for this in China, for this crisis. but they do; they are concerned about the government forcing people to go back to work. There are some factories where people produce masks and other things like that. And uh, the government has forced them to work. And there's a sense that they're upset about that because they don't want to be, they don't want to be forced to be exposed to a virus like this. And uh, if the government were to go out of their way to try to otherwise coerce people into coming back to work more broadly, that could create problems. Because again, people are sufficiently scared of the virus that they would really resent being forced to be exposed to it again. So we'll see what happens. But was there anything else that caught your eye, Nero? <laughs> mm, not particularly. Some people were curious about if there's anything on the Republican side worth noting. It seems like it's not going to be that contested for Trump. The Democratic candidate, I think it's the one that it's more undecided. On the Republican Party nomination process? Yeah. I mean, Trump has a lock on it. There's There were two people who just said that they would run against him, but neither of their campaigns ever took off, and it's debatable just how serious they were in the first place. They may have been just doing it to 
kind of build political capital, get their name out there and get support, etc. So it it's definitely looking like it's going to be Trump. And the Republican Party in general is also, I think, better at uh, party organization. You know, one of the little cutesy phrases I've been hearing lately is that uh, Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. And that's a reference to the fact that uh, Democratic voters tend to prefer candidates that inspire them. You know, they want to vote for a candidate that's actually going to really motivate them to get out and vote and get involved in the political process. Whereas in contrast, the Republican nomination process tends to emphasize uh, not groupthink. I want, that's not the quite. That's not the right phrase I want, but rather uh, they want to emphasize solidarity. You know, even if there's a candidate you don't like, you should still support the candidate that the party rallies around uh, for the good of the party. <clears throat> so you see some of that at play now with Trump, even though there's institutionally there's a lot of people in the Republican Party who have issues with Donald Trump. Uh, they're not going to come out against him, it seems. It seems like they're going to throw their weight around behind him and try to make do as best they can. So not much new in that sense. Let me see here. So that's U.S. politics. We talked about Syria. Any particular region you're interested in? Mm, what's happening in Southeast Asia? Ah, I just happen to have something specifically for that region. Uh, how familiar are you with Malaysia? Uh, not as familiar as I would like to be. How far do you want me to go back, Nero? <laughs> <laughs> back to the beginning. Back to the beginning. Okay. Let's see. Historically, it's an ethnic melee uh, territory. You know, the territories that today constitute Malaysia, uh, principally the Malay Peninsula and that weird chunk of the Borneo Island. Uh, most of that is ethnically Malay. Although I should point out here that the core of Malaysia is the Malay Peninsula. Borneo is kind of its own thing. Uh, the Malay Peninsula was originally colonized by the British. And I think they were looking for tin. And the, the mining industry, you know, whatever the material was, was the principal genesis of that. You know, the British traders invested in mines. The British government came in after them. And they, created, they made deals with the local sultanates. Uh, it's an Islamic area. So the, the local tribal rulers were uh, sultanates, technically, I think. And uh, they made deals with them in which uh, British residents were made to stay with the court uh, of the local governments. And for those not familiar with the residency system, basically a resident is just an agent of the British government whom has no official power to order around the governments to whom they're assigned to. Uh, but the governments are strongly encouraged, quote unquote, encouraged to follow the advice as it were, of the resident. So it's a way of ensuring that British interests are not trampled upon. Uh, generally, there's a lot of autonomy involved. You know, the local government can kind of do what it wants for a lot of issues, but the resident uh, will make sure to give advice when British interests are at stake and to ensure, uh, well, not ensure, but to ensure the British position is clear to the local government with the implicit threat being that if they don't adhere to British interests, uh, as representative, as represented by the British resident, uh, then there will be some punishment of some kind, possibly military. Uh, <clears throat> so that's the system that was put in place in the Malay Peninsula uh, in order to protect uh, British economic interests there, specifically mining interests. Now, one of the things that happened uh, over the course of the 19th, late 19th century as this was happening is that a lot of Chinese migrant workers came to work in the mines. 
And uh, as a result, there was a relatively large population of Chinese amagres uh, that set up shop in uh, the Malay Peninsula and became, I don't want to say natives, but uh, they lived there. They decided to live there long term. So this created something of a problem because there was some tension with the indigenous ethnic Malay population between uh, the ethnic Chinese population. Of course, the two are very different. You know, the Malay are uh, Muslims and have uh, roots in the local roots in the land. You know, they have a history there. And then uh, the Chinese, of course, are, you know, Confucian, Buddhist, etc. You know, the Chinese panoply of a uh, Chinese trifecta of uh, religious backgrounds, Confucianism, Buddhism, and uh, Taoism. I think are the, the, the big three for China. So, you know, there's sort of a political, economic, well, not economic per se, but religious philosophical difference there, historically speaking. And of course, the cultures are different, different cultural histories and uh, different economic interests uh, since the Chinese were mostly miners and entrepreneurs and, uh, you know, so on and so forth, you know, traditional ethnic tension type stuff. And so long as the British were there, that wasn't too much of a problem. They could kind of paper over that, you know, the colonial authorities ensured it, you know, again, the principal interest for the British was economic in nature. So they have an interest in maintaining stability. Uh, just as an aside here, the most famous uh, city that developed as a result of Chinese migration was uh, the city of Singapore, I believe it was. <clears throat> Singapore originally was part of this territory, and uh, it really got to be a major city by way of Chinese migration. It was already important as an intraput. That is to say, a trading post uh, for you know sh merchant ships, you know, traversing the region, going through the Straits of Malacca, would stop off at Singapore. Uh, so it was so it had already been important for that reason, uh, but it was the massive migration of Chinese into the Malay Peninsula uh, that really kind of made Singapore a big city. And to this day, it's disproportionately, I think, it's majority ethnic Chinese. So people are already pretty, pretty familiar with Singapore and the fact that it's mostly Chinese, but they might not know that uh, Malaysia also has a large minority of Chinese people that stems from this period. It's about 30% of the population of Malaysia. So anyway, going back to the British period, uh, the Malay Peninsula uh, was controlled by the British. It was a colonial possession, so the locals didn't really have a lot of autonomy. Uh, in the late 19th century, they had relatively more autonomy because they were using the residency system. But then in the early 20th century, uh, they changed it so that it was more of a direct governance system, wherein there was a colonial regime in place uh, that had direct authority over uh, the administration of the peninsula as a whole. That was pretty controversial at the time because it re required almagating all of these different sultanates into a single polity, which they hadn't really, which hadn't really been done before. You know, they kind of resented the loss of privilege. Uh, they didn't necessarily get kicked out of power. I think the sultanates, the royal families, and whatnot, still retained some power. Uh, but the British were in the driver's seat officially now, as opposed to unofficially, as they had been before. So going into the 1940s and 50s, then, there's the question of decolonization. Uh, at that point, the British, government, the British Empire was in retreat, and uh, there was a sense then that preparations had to be made uh, for independence of the Malay Peninsula. But the big question was, how do you do that? Because again, these are all disparate polities that have been kind of arbitrarily allegated together. It was not really an organic whole. And uh, that wasn't really clear at the time. So there was a lot of debate about that. And eventually it was decided to create a federation. And so that federation involved all the different sultanates coming together under one government. 
there was a lot of political finagling that went into that on the part of uh, local indigenous nationalist uh, political parties. There was a major coalition that emerged, principally led by melee political parties, uh, that ended up being the principal force for independence uh, in what would become Malaysia, specifically the Malay Peninsula, though. And uh, they're the ones that were able to kind of finally come to an agreement about what a federated Malaysia would look like. Now, Borneo is kind of, like I said, a separate thing. That was a different territory that has a different history. Uh, Borneo, going back to the 19th century, was very sparsely populated. Uh, it had historically not been a major center of like civilization, you know, urban life, cities, uh, or even really international trade. It was, again, sparsely populated by people who were largely tribal and lived off the land. Uh, the interest by Europeans came much later in the late 19th century and early 20th century when oil was discovered there. So then, of course, that got everybody's attention. And uh, there was some, you know, there was some weird stuff that happened. There was a European guy, a British guy, I think it was, who got to be friends with one of the sultans there. And he happened to be the sultan of one of the oil producing areas. And this sultan basically uh, said that when I, I think, I think this is the way the story goes. Maybe we've got somebody from Malaysia who can clear it up for me, but uh, the Sultan agreed that when he died, his British friend would become Sultan. And that actually happened. And he became known as the uh, the White Sultan, I think, or something like that. And he was actually just a European guy who was also a Sultan of this territory in Borneo for a number of years as a result. So owing to that particular example, as well as some other, you know, the usual imperialist chicanery in the region, uh, Britain came into possession of the northwestern chunk of Borneo. Uh, the Dutch got the rest of it, but the British were uh, got some important oil-producing areas there, especially Brunei, what would become known as the Sultanate of Brunei, which is a very tiny state there. Uh, so all of that territory, northwestern uh, Borneo, was governed directly from the British from the early 20th century. It roughly parallels the history of the Malay Peninsula in that sense, I think. Uh residencies in the late 19th century, direct governance, early 20th century. So then going into independence, then when Malay, the Malay Peninsula was talking about independence, there were people in Borneo talking about it too. But there was a sense then, though, that uh, Borneo would probably, might, you know, it, what, nobody was sure, but, you know, do we just make Borneo independent? Do we let the Dutch, uh, well, not the Dutch, but Indonesia, do we let Indonesia swallow it up, uh, annex it? Uh, do we let it, nor do we have it become part of the Malay Peninsula and their federated country? That was the debate. And it wasn't really clear at the time, but eventually there was a negotiated settlement that more or less appeased everybody. And uh, again, that was the federation. And so the federation involved not only all the sultanates of the Malay Peninsula that had been part of the British Empire, but also that chunk of Borneo as well. So that's how it came. That's how Malaysia came to be formed. You know, once it became an independent country, that's what it looked like. Now that still doesn't quite represent. Uh, that doesn't quite get us up to the modern day, because uh, there was a lot of tension, like I was saying before, between the Chinese and the Malay population, and a lot of the ethnic Malay political parties were hesitant uh, to form a federation in the first place because they didn't really want to share power with the Chinese whom they kind of saw as interlopers. You know, the only reason they were there was because of the British Empire. And they were so different that uh, compromise politically would mean uh, giving up some important social concessions on social issues, etc. So 
again, usual ethnic tension type stuff. So what ended up happening is that there was a very grudging agreement to form the Federation in the first place. Uh, but the tension with the Chinese and the Malays never went away. And eventually what happened uh, is that Singapore was pushed out of the Federation. They were explicitly expunged. Uh, and the reason was that Singapore was the largest single center of Chinese population in Malaysia. And uh, the Malay political parties, which were the more powerful, didn't want to share power. And getting rid of Singapore was a way to uh, preserve power on the peninsula, in the Federation, I should say. <clears throat> so the result then is that you have an independent city-state, Singapore, which continues to be an independent city-state today, and then a separate federation comprised of the Malay Peninsula and Borneo, in which uh, Chinese are much smaller than they were otherwise. I think they made something where somewhere between 40, uh, I don't want to say 50%, but maybe 40 to 45% of the population when Singapore was still part of Malaysia, which was a lot, lot more and translated into a lot more political power. But after Singapore was kicked out, the Chinese uh, political, rep well, the share of power uh, held by Chinese politicians was something like a third of the seats, you know, representative of their population. So it was a significant downgrading for them, as was the plan for the Malay parties. So that tension has been managed pretty well since then. Because after that, the main Malay political party formed a major coalition with uh, ethnic, well, political parties, for the main political parties for the other ethnic groups. Uh, Chinese are one, Indians are another one. Although the Indians are a very small minority, maybe 5-10% of the population. But regardless, this grand coalition uh, basically ran Malaysia for decades. And uh, they managed ethnic tensions uh, through political patronage, you know, making sure everybody was, everybody was paid off and, uh, you know, censorship, you know, hiding incidents of discrimination, etc. Uh, it was a pseudo authoritarian state in a sense for a long time. So that brings us up to the modern day. Uh, Malaysia is not an Asian tiger, but its economy has been one of the more one of the better performing ones in Southeast Asia. So they've seen a fair amount of growth over the past couple decades. Although paradoxically, that's also led to some uh, retrenchment of traditional conservative ideals about Islam and social conservatism. Some of that has to do with, you know, Saudi madrasas and whatnot. But uh, I think also just having more money led some people to kind of double down on populist, uh, well, not even populist sentimentalities, but just religion. In general, you know, the society has, in a sense, become more socially conservative with time, although not enough to really spark uh, ethnic tensions with the Chinese again. So that's roughly where they are. Decent economy, uh, more democratic, relatively speaking. But uh, as you can kind of tell from the, my description of the main coalition, uh, party politics are a little bit corrupt. Corruption is definitely a big part of uh, Malaysian politics even today and has been for a long time. So that's a that's a quick and dirty summary off the top of my head. But uh, hopefully that kind of get does that give you a decent impression there, Neuro? Well, that about quadrupled what I knew about Malaysia. So okay. thank you. Okay. So that brings us up to the present. Now, speaking of corruption, uh, the established political coalition that's been in power for a long time uh, their main leader for a couple decades was a guy named uh, Mahathir. And he kind of 
fathered the nation through a good chunk of its post-independence period and oversaw economic growth, modernization, etc. So he's definitely been a major political figure in Malaysian history. And he eventually stepped down and uh, kind of gave the reins to the coalition to uh, a guy named uh, Razak, Najib Razak. And uh, excuse me a minute here. Excuse me. Stay hydrated, fam. <laughs> uh, oh, where was I? Oh, yeah, Mahathir. So Mahathir stepped down and he gave control of the coalition to uh, Najib Nazak or Razak. <clears throat> and uh, Razak was controversial. <laughs> he, d- he wasn't controversial because he did anything really different. He was just con- controversial because he was continuing the corrupt practices of the party, which had kind of always been the case. But he wasn't really generating positive growth. He wasn't really developing the country. It just kind of seemed like uh, business as usual corruption. So Mahathir kind of criticized him for that, but uh, Razak was in the driver's seat, so there wasn't much he could really do about it, you know, since Mahathir had kind of retired. Uh, so then what happened over the past couple of years is a scandal called the 1MDB scandal. Now, the 1MDB refers to a development fund that was set up by the Malaysian government to pay for uh, economic development programs. And as it came out, very little of that money went to economic development programs. It seems that much more of it went into the pockets of connected political figures, including Mr. Razak. Now, that scandal took a while to unwind, but uh, eventually the U.S. got involved. You know, they started investigating it and they found that there had been wrongdoing, etc. Embezzling, they started following the money. And that in conjunction with uh, nominal, although much curtailed, investigations in Malaysia, Uh, eventually led to an outbreak of public disenchantment with the establishment status quo. Now, it's important here to point out that while Malaysia was a pseudo-authoritarian country, it wasn't completely authoritarian. They did have actual elections. It's just that the elections were not completely free and fair. You know, the media was mostly in the pocket of the established coalition, so there wasn't a lot of coverage of alternatives Uh, The electoral system was designed to favor the uh, main coalition, etc. You know, so it just wasn't an even playing field. But enough people got upset at the coalition to start supporting reformists, uh, a reformist coalition more specifically. And there was a big election a couple of years ago in which the reformists were set to do well, but it wasn't clear if they would have enough to actually form a government. You know, as much as much disenchantment as there was over the 1MDB thing, over the 1MDB scandal, it still wasn't clear that there would be enough disenchantment uh, to get uh, enough votes for the reformist coalition to get them into power and to actually implement some change. So at this point, Mahathir re-enters politics. He's 94 years old, or uh, I guess he was a little younger at that time, maybe 92 years old, but uh, certainly very aged, to put it mildly. But he waded back into politics in order to try to uh, invigorate this reformist coalition with his support, because he obviously, uh, as a major figure in Malaysian history, has a lot of credibility and has a lot of support. And not only that, he has a lot of credibility amongst the corrupt insiders in Malaysian politics. You know, he's a known quantity. And so they figure that since he knows how to play the game, then if they support him, he'll reward them accordingly. So all those factors com- combined to make Mahathir's re-entry into politics and his support for the reformist coalition 
uh, really tipped the scales in favor of the reformists, such that when they did win the election, well, such that when the election happened, they were able to win enough seats to form a government, which is the first time that it happened in decades in Malaysia. Maybe ever. I don't quite remember. I'm not super up on Malaysian history. <clears throat> so let's see here. Uh, now, the re- part of what the deal was uh, that was made before the election is that Mahathir would be the leading spokesman for the coalition. He would be their representative, and if they won, he would be prime minister. And that happened. He did become prime minister. But uh, one of the quid pro quos of that is if he was allowed to do that, then he would have to allow uh, a major opposition leader named, what's his face here? Uh, Abraham something, I want to say. Where the hell is it in my notes here? Oh, here it is. Anwar Ibrahim. Now, Anwar Ibrahim has an interesting history with Mahathir because he had actually been uh, Mahathir's original choice to succeed him as the head of the coalition. And what happened is that there was a falling out and eventually Anwar Ibrahim ended up being put in jail because sodomy. (laughs) Yeah, oh no. And, uh, you know, like I was saying, Malaysia is an Islamic country, so there's, it's relatively conservative, and in some cases they have relatively conservative laws on the books, which are not always enforced strictly, but if you have a political opponent you want to ruin, you can very selectively enforce those provisions, and that's kind of what happened here. It's debatable whether or not there was actual any real sodomy, which is not a phrase I utter every day, but... Uh, it's not really clear whether or not the charges were completely fabricated or rooted in the truth, but regardless, it seems likely that they were selectively enforced in this case because of the following falling out uh, between Anwar Ibrahim and Mahathir. So later on, Anwar became a uh, opposition figure, or maybe he became an opposition figure and then was targeted. I don't quite remember the order, uh, but regardless, Anwar Ibrahim became a major opposition politician in Malaysia albeit one who could basically never run because he was in jail or uh, had that charge lingering over him, preventing him from running. Uh, Well, I should say he could have run. He could have, he literally could not run because uh, legally because of that charge, which is one of the reasons that they probably put it on him. So one of the conditions for the reformist coalition uh, in the past couple of years to allow Mahathir to kind of become the prime minister and become to join the coalition, as it were, is that Anwar Ibrahim would be would become the new prime minister after some set time period. It was never specified. It was just agreed that Mahathir would be president, prime minister, rather, uh, for maybe two years or so. And then he would step down and turn the reins over to Anwar Ibrahim. That was the deal anyway. Now, over the past couple of years, uh, Mahathir has been prime minister, but he hasn't really been super clear about when exactly he would transfer power. And he's he's become increasingly cagey about it as Anwar's supporters in the coalition have become more vocal about it. Now, at the same time all this is happening, uh, there's also an effort by the reformist coalition to actually, you know, govern and be take advantage of the unique opportunity provided to them. And it hasn't really been working great. There's been a lot of infighting. As it happens, a lot of the political parties in the coalition were united by distaste for Razak and the establishment incumbent political coalition. The, uh, I think I have the acronym here, the UNMO. 
But beyond that, there was a lot of cleavages and differences between the different reformist coalition partners. And while those differences could be, be could be put aside in order to actually beat uh, the UNMO, the establishment party, once they'd actually won, those cleavages came out into the open again and made governance very difficult. So it seems that for that reason, in part, Mahathir has broken with the coalition. And that's the drama that's been happening in Malaysia over the past couple of weeks. Uh, it seems that whatever deal there was between the reformist and Mahathir uh, is no longer fit for purpose. So Mahathir has a couple different reasons for doing this. One of them, like I was saying, uh, is that there was infighting in the coalition and very little progress was actually being made. So it may be that Mahathir thought that he could make a power play and uh, create a new coalition uh, with fact with particular aspects and parties of the reformist coalition, and perhaps also uh, with the resort with the uh, support of some of the parties in the establishment coalition. That's the theory anyway. So in addition to that, there's also the fact that the UNMO has been recovering in the polls. Obviously, they took a lot of heat for the one named DB scandal, uh, but now they're starting to do a little better in the polls. So there's a sense that they're starting to gain back some of the ground they lost politically uh, to the reformists. And in addition to that, another reason that Mahathir may have broken with the coalition uh yeah, some of the tension between Mahathir and uh, the people and the major figures in the party, the UNMO party, the establishment party, some of that tension between them is gone because Rezak is gone. Uh, Rezak was pushed out, you know, investigated for corruption, has been arrested. And uh, a lot of Rezak's supporters in the party didn't want to abandon him uh, in favor of Mahathir. But since Rezak's gone now, that problem is gone. So there's a sense then that with UNMO gaining in the polls and uh, with the principal block between reconciliation between the party and Mahathir, the former head of the party, with those factors gone, it seems more likely that there could be some kind of reconciliation there. So uh, Mahathir broke with the coalition. It was an ambitious attempt to try to become uh, the head of a new coalition in which his hold on power was stronger. There wouldn't be any cloud hanging over his head about handing over power to Anwar Ibrahim. And the result of that shift is failure. Mahathir was unable to form a coalition large enough uh, to get a clear enough majority to form a new government. And because no, no government could be formed uh, that had explicitly an explicitly large enough number of votes, uh, the king of Malaysia uh, had to make a decision. And yes, there is a king of Malaysia. <laughs> Don't ask me about the history of the king of Malaysia. I have no idea. Uh, presumably it came out of one of the sultanates that comprised the Malay Peninsula, but I don't know. Regardless, the king of Malaysia is the head of state, so when there's an impasse in formation of government in the Malaysian constitution, it falls to the king in order to make a judgment call and give a certain party an, an opportunity. Uh, well, let me rephrase that. It falls to him to appoint a new prime minister based on who he thinks has the greatest likelihood of forming a majority in parliament. So... The king ended up appointing a guy named, what's his face here? I've got his name here. I'm not hewing super close to mine. He became Sir What's-His-Face here. <laughs> here it is. Muhyiddin Yassin. Muhyiddin Yassin. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, so I apologize in advance. Uh, 
the king says that he thinks that Muyadin has the most likelihood of getting a majority in parliament. Now, Muyadin is a member of the reformist coalition, but he's seen as having relatively close ties with the UNMO, the establishment coalition. So that being the case, there's a sense, in fact, of fear that now that he's prime minister, then maybe conservative, corrupt establishment figures will return Malaysian politics to its corrupt status quo before the reformist coalition got into power. That's the fear anyway. So it's very it's a very disappointing outcome for the people who supported the reformists who had high hopes once they were actually able to win power. It seems that those gains are in jeopardy. So Mahathir, for his part, has written to the king saying that actually he has the majority in parliament, but it seems that that's probably a day late and a dollar short. Uh, we'll see. It's an ongoing story. You know, It's still unfolding, so there could be further developments going forward. Uh, but at this point, the reformists have... Uh, not been kicked out of power, but they've got a guy in charge, the prime minister, whom is a little cozy with the people that they were trying to kick out and reform in the first place. We'll see what happens. But this is an example of uh, the power of establishment political forces. You know, it illustrates that it's not easy for reformists in any political system, uh, but especially a political system where corrupt actors are entrenched to make changes in that system. It's exceptionally difficult to do when there are so many vested interests and expectations uh, that don't really prefer uh, reformist-style policies. Uh, To kind of elaborate on that, I know that's a little bit of a word salad. Think of it like this. In a political system where the principal unit of analysis uh, is a corrupt politician looking for patronage, it doesn't really matter how good your politics look to the average public, how honest or clean you are in your politics, Uh, whoever generates the most patronage is going to get the support of those political actors. And it's those political actors who are the most important in Malaysia. There is something of a nascent civil society emerging and has been emerging over the past couple of years. Uh, Well, I mean, it's been there for longer than that, but especially over the past couple of years. Uh, For them, they vote based on policy and not on patronage. But a lot of voters in Malaysia still do vote on patronage, and therein lies the problem. You know, whoever can deliver the most goods to the locality gets the support. And whoever, in turn, can deliver to those local political actors the most patronage opportunities, uh, the more support that actor has. You know, this is how the UNMO coalition, the establishment coalition, was able to stay in power so long. They ran a really efficient, productive uh, patronage network that provided those kinds of supports to local political elites. Uh, enough of the faith in that system was shaken uh, to get a reformist in power, although again, an important facet there is that a lot of those corrupt political actors saw Mahathir as one of their own, and when they saw him join the reformist coalition, they thought, oh, this is a guy who knows how to do business. Our guys are in decline because of the 1MDB scandal, let's defect to the new coalition under Mahathir. That was nominally the logic anyway, as I read it. So that being the case then, now that the Mahathir guy, now that Mahathir is out of power nominally, and the coalition is in something, not disarray, but it's it's clearly losing its luster, uh, a lot of those guys are starting to defect back to the UNMO. And uh, that's sort of the illustrative point here. You know, because there's not enough of a constituency for honest politics, it's really hard to make a reformist victory in an election stick. 
And it's looking like this one won't. There's still some hope, but we'll see. So that's Malaysia, or at least what I had on it. Seems like a pretty interesting place. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's very exotic in a sense because it's got this weird mix of Indians, Malays, and Chinese. It's a somewhat awkward combination, uh, but they make it work somehow. <laughs> it's easily one of the more diverse examples. It's also sort of a kind of you can kind of think of it as a relic of the British Empire, in a sense. In so much as it, you know, the tin, you know, the tin mines existed because of British investment, and that the it part the country itself was partly formed as a result of uh, the negotiations involving the British government. So, you know, the Chinese and the Malays all living there together kind of reflects the uh, status under the British Empire, in a sense. Yeah, an unusual country. So let's see, Southeast Asia. I think that's all I had. No, that's not all I had for Southeast Asia either, because I also had Philippines. How much do you know about the Philippines, Nero? Well, I know that they have much closer ties with the U.S. than a lot of other countries. Yeah, they have ties uh, stemming from the colonial period when the U.S. Uh, it was a territory of the United States. Uh, that was back when the United States was engaging in its uh, imperialist phase. Went to war with Spain. And uh, that's how it got Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, and Guam. And then and that's also how it got the Philippines. The Philippines was a Spanish possession for... A couple of hundred years. Actually, did you know that the... You know what conquistadors are, right? Did you know that conquistadors conquered the Philippines? Yes, actually. And that's part of why Christianity is has a pretty strong foothold exactly. in the Philippines. Yeah. Way back in the 1500s, conquistadors actually sailing west from New Spain, Mexico, they actually found and conquered... Uh, well, most of the Philippines, anyway. It, it took them a while to really get control of the whole archipelago. But yeah, yeah, that's it was the Spanish conquistadors who took it in the first place, and they Christianized it, and uh, they also kind of restructured the society a little bit. Uh, you know, they have the friars and uh, Franciscans, and you know all that jazz. So definitely, it's been shaped heavily by Spanish culture and Spanish norms, etc. <clears throat> But Spanish, the Spanish Empire was in decline in the late 1800s, and so the United States was able to, uh, you know, the Spanish-American War is a whole conversation unto itself, but uh, long story short, the U.S. won and took a bunch of Span- Spain's stuff, and among that stuff was the Philippines. So for about, I want to say, 50-some years, let's say, the Philippines was a U.S. possession, And in that time, the United States shaped uh, Filipino institutions, specifically government, invested in the economy. I think at one point, I read that at one point, the Philippines was the wealthiest, uh, let's call it a nation, the wealthiest nation in the Asia-Pacific region other than Japan. Uh, From what I read, World War II kind of put an end to that. You know, obviously, there was a lot of fighting there. For those of you who remember our Asia-Pacific, asia no, Pacific Theater. Those of you who remember our Pacific Theater series, uh, we covered the Battle of the Philippines in some detail. So that was immensely destructive and kind of wrecked the economy a bit and put them in reconstruction mode for a long time. And then after independence, 
the Philippines would maintain strong defense ties and economic ties with the United States, uh, not least because of uh, nascent Marxist activity in the Philippines. Uh, well, I shouldn't say Marxist. I should say uh, radical communists. I think they were Maoists uh, operating in the countryside on Luzon Island for the most part, I think it was. And uh, there was sufficient fear of communism in the 1950s, as I'm sure you can imagine, uh, that the Philippines saw maintaining its defense ties with the United States as a pretty wise move. Since at that time, you know, everybody kind of associated uh, radical communists with uh, the Soviet Union. You know, there was an implicit association and assumption uh, that the Soviet Union controlled uh, explicitly communist movements all over the world. And, uh, you know, owing to a lack of information, which we have in abundance today, but they did not in the 1950s, there was a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty amongst governments about just what the extent of the relationship was between communist states and communist movements. So there was a fair amount of paranoia that played into that as well. Anyway, the defense ties were maintained, and uh, the Philippines has been a pretty steadfast U.S. ally in the region, although they haven't really had to do much. Uh, that started to change over the past couple, what, decades, basically since the end of the Cold War. Since with the end of the Cold War, there wasn't really a clear-cut enemy that the Philippines needed to really worry about and needed the U.S. for. And so after that, uh, nationalist sentiment kind of took hold. And part and parcel of that was the democratization movement in the Philippines. Uh, after the Philippines ind got independence in 1947, I want to say, uh, after independence, for about like 10 years, there was pretty decent democratic institutions, but they were not in great health. And eventually, political instability, disgruntlement with corruption, etc., all of that resulted in the election of a guy named Marcos. And Marcos decided after he got elected that he liked being in power so much that he was just going to stay in power regardless of what people thought about it. And he ended up being dictator of the Philippines for something like 20 years, I think some 20 years thereabouts. <clears throat> and it wasn't until the mid-late 80s that a democratization movement started up that had enough force behind it. Well, not force, but had enough public support behind it uh, to spark mass protests that were able to bring down the Marcos regime. And thus began uh, the onset of modern Filipino democracy. And not super stable. <laughs> it's not... And democratic institutions are decent, but they're not in great shape in a lot of cases. You know, local landlords tend to be very powerful and a little cutthroat. There's some Game of Thrones style murder going on in some of those localities, especially with regard to political opponents and journalists. Uh, but otherwise, for the most part, it works well enough. You know, there and there is a support for democracy in the Philippines, uh, specifically liberal democracy. Uh, so that is an encouraging sign of progress. But uh, over the past couple of decades, successive governments were elected that were just corrupt uh, or were perceived as corrupt. And the result is that there was a broad disenchantment with establishment politics of any sort. Uh, sounds familiar, right? So eventually a guy came along who was pure populist, and that was a guy named Duterte, who had been mayor of a city in the far south called Davao. And Duterte was and remains uh a very forceful personality. You know, he's not afraid to speak his mind. 
And kind of like with Trump in 2016, he was seen as an outsider candidate who could stand up to the established political class. And based on that campaign platform, which he ran on, he won and became president of the Philippines. So this is important because I didn't finish the point about ties between the U.S. and China, the U.S. and the Philippines, rather. Um, But the election of Duterte is relevant because it exacerbated a challenge in the relationship between the Philippines and uh, the U.S. that had started with the onset of democratization. The biggest naval base that the U.S. used to have uh, outside of the U.S. used to be in the Philippines. It was a massive naval base located in... Actually, I don't think I remember what exactly it was called. I'll wager somebody in chat knows exactly what it was, but I don't quite remember off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Uh, But it was a very large naval base, and it was the cornerstone for the U.S. Pacific Fleet for a long time. And because nationalist sentiment really was in the ascendant after democratization... One of the things nationalists wanted and had long wanted was to reject the U.S. military from the Philippines. And that was something that they actually got. Uh, You know, an active volcano played a part, too. There was a nearby volcano that went active, and so that precipitated a rapid withdrawal. But that also kind of gave the Filipino government a stealth excuse to really kind of push it. You know, since you're gone already, why not just stay gone? So that's an example of uh, the first, that's one of the first examples in the post-Cold War environment of the distancing between the Philippines and the U.S. But for the most part, they still stayed close. There wasn't really much reason to uh, continue distancing, even if there wasn't a lot of reason to stay close. But with the election of Duterte, that started to change. You know, obviously the United States, at least under the Obama administration, had an overriding interest, um, nominally debatable, but nominally had an interest in human rights. Uh, and that was nominally a part of the U.S., nominally a cornerstone of the U.S. foreign policy. So when Duterte was elected after promising to kill all the drug users and drug dealers and whatnot, that was a problem for the United States and its human rights agenda, such as it was. And the the result is that relations deteriorated rapidly because Duterte obviously took that personally and uh, didn't much appreciate it at all. So relations were frosty. The Obama administration uh, critiqued uh, the Duterte administration and its human rights record, especially with regard to its drug war, uh, which was one of the populist promises that he'd made. And in retaliation, uh, Duterte referred to Barack Obama himself as a quote-unquote son of a whore, I believe his words were. So that kind of illustrated that populist style of rhetoric early going there in the Philippines. They got it before we did, uh, so to speak. But that just illustrates how bad relations were. Uh, Trump's election kind of eased things up because then the Trump administration hasn't really criticized them nearly as much. Uh, But that brings us up to today with the recent news. Let me see if I can find the notes here. So recently, uh, here we go, the Philippine government announced that they were going to pull out of a visiting forces agreement with the United States, which was a big deal. Because uh, that agreement allows U.S. forces to deploy to the Philippines to train with the local military and also facilitates U.S.-Filipino war games. Uh, it's also apparently relevant to freedom of navigation operations, uh, which are, it's a fancy name for when the U.S. Navy sails through territory China claims in order to piss them off. <laughs> that's that's the short version. That's, 
it's disputed territory, so the U.S. sails through it to show that they don't recognize the claim. So the fancy name for that is Freedom of Navigation and Operation. <laughs> so this... Uh, We're doing this. Sorry? We're doing this because yeah, we can. Yeah, it's literally logic behind it. It's a very American practice. Oh, yeah. Practice. We've done it a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, the agreement also uh, allows U.S. personnel to stay in the country generally, you know, broadly speaking. So it's an important part of the security relationship. But the Philippines has given the Filipino government has given advance notice that they're going to end it, which is a part of the treaty, uh, which is well, not a treaty, but a part of the agreement. If you're going to pull out of it, if one side or the other wants to pull out of the agreement, they have to give advance notice, uh, something like a couple months advance notice or something like that. So the reason that they've uh, the reason that Duterte has made this decision has decided to pull out of the agreement is in retaliation to a specific incident. Uh, the U.S. has revoked the visa of a former police chief, a senator, Ronald Ronald De La Rosa, I think his name is, and uh, he's been previously implicated in extrajudicial killings uh, related to the war on drugs that Duterte has been propagating. So for that reason, his visa was revoked. Uh, This upset Duterte, and uh, he's given the United States one month to restore De La Rosa's visa. U.S. for its part is yet to respond, at least as of the time that I was reading about this a week or two ago. So in a sense, this is a shit fit. Uh, This is Duterte basically posturing and saying he resents this in what he perceives as a kind of insult and he's demanding that the U.S. do something about it or there's going to be trouble. So in that sense, this isn't necessarily a genuine uh, withdrawal from the treaty. It may be, given that it's going to, he has to give a couple months uh, advance notice anyway, it may be that he's just signaling that he's mad or maybe even just posturing for domestic political consumption and that after a couple months or maybe even sooner, uh, he resents the announcement. You know, just because you announce beforehand that in a couple months you're going to end the agreement, doesn't mean you can't reverse the announcement later on. So that seems to be likely what's happening here. Just uh, high stakes posturing. But it caught a lot of people's attention because it underlined that question, uh, underlying uh, the deterioration and ties between the U.S. Uh, and the Philippines, and uh, that has to do not only with uh, security issues and human rights issues, but also with China. Uh, More and more of uh, the Philippines economy is tied with China and the Chinese economy on account of exports of natural resources, tourism, etc. And so that sort of soft economic power that the Chinese government has to wield in the Philippines is growing, and it's bringing into question just how close the United States and the Philippines really can be in the long run. So this incident really highlighted that even if the incident itself was a little bit bullshit and is probably just political theater. So to elaborate a little more on this, uh, he's also upset about the U.S. pushing for the the release of an opposition politician, uh, Senator Lila de Lima, sorry, Lila de Lima, uh, was accused by Duterte of involvement in illegal drugs, uh, but she's also apparently a high-profile opposition political figure, so the suspicion is that the charges were trumped up or fabricated. So the United States, again, as part of its nominally uh, human rights-oriented foreign policy, has made the request for the Philippine government to release her. That's been a long-running sore 
with the Duterte regime, though, so that's not something new. <clears throat> so some other things Duterte has done, uh, he's threatened to ban some U.S. senators whom have criticized him from entering the Philippines. Uh, barred, he's barred cabinet officials from traveling to the United States, and he turned down an, 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 he turned down an invitation by Trump uh, to join a special meeting for ASEAN leaders in Las Vegas. So you can see why I would call this a shit fit. This isn't really like substantive strategic stuff that he's doing in retaliation. A lot of it is superficial and symbolic, which is why I think that most likely the uh, announcement that the Philippines is pulling out of the agreement will probably be rescinded. Uh, either once the U.S. has taken some token reconciliatory measures or maybe even just once the issue is fallen out of the news cycle and nobody's paying attention anymore. Easy political points for Duterte at this point. Yeah, it seems like he just wants to be feared and respected is what he's shooting for. Oh yeah, I mean, that's definitely the key thing there. Let's see. Uh, so some other reasons, here, some other factors here. Some reasons to think that uh, Duterte's threat is not credible. He's threatened the VFA before. Uh, the U.S. aid agency had put a hold on funds for anti-poverty poverty projects in the Philippines that had to do again with the human rights situation vis-a-vis -vis the drug war. Uh, but Duterte ended up backing off of those threats at that later on. <clears throat> well, that is to say, he threatened to remove the VFA because the U.S. aid agency put the aid on hold, but then later on backed off. And Duterte is known to bloviate in general. You know, he's kind of prone to outbursts like this. I think he even insulted God at one point, which is bizarre, because the Philippines. The Christian God? What? Just to be clear. Yeah. He insulted the Christian God. Yeah, and you know the Philippines, as you know, is a very Catholic religious country, so it was kind of a surprise to you know to hear a to hear a major leading political figure talk like that. But uh, not only did he do it, but apparently he got away with it since his supporters were kind of willing to give him a benefit of the doubt. He's not perfect, but he's our guy. Seems to be the thinking. I've heard that before somewhere. <laughs> so let's see yeah people want candor yeah i think even if it's at the expense of virtue which is interesting yeah and i think that has to do with trust you know if you have a high trust political system then you trust your politicians are going to be honest and so you don't mind it if they're a little boring and bland and technocratic but when trust starts to fall off then the boring technocratic type stuff seems less than genuine. It seems a little bit like bullshit, like they're trying to talk through you. And that's because a lot of people, you know, we've talked about this before. People can't really be expected to be experts on every policy issue. So they have to use heuristics. So given that you're not an expert on a given policy issue, how do you know whether or not a politician is lying to you? Well, if you trust politicians, or at least your politicians in general, it's not necessarily too much of a problem. If a technocratic guy starts talking bullshit, you don't necessarily understand you take his conclusions at face value, that he's trying to make an earnest attempt to inform you. But trust in a lot of developed country political systems has been declining, and so that benefit of the doubt is no longer being granted. In which case, somebody who is offering candor, somebody who you think is offering a unvarnished look at what they believe and how they're going to govern, that guy has relatively more credibility. Even if he seems like he's full of shit, he seems like he's a better bet in terms of trust just because he doesn't seem like he's bullshitting you like the technocratic guys are. 
that's part of the dynamic at play. It's not the full story. There are other factors at play for why populists have become popular over time. <clears throat> but that's certainly one of the big factors, a decline in trust in institutional political forces. So let's see. Another reason to think that Duterte is not uh, credibly threatening the agreement here. He hasn't said anything about other defense treaties with the U.S., and, well, maybe this isn't something that illustrates how he's not credibly threatening the agreement here. This is more an example of why his, his threatening this agreement does not really mean that uh, the security relationship between the Philippines and the U.S. is actually threatened, which is what some of the media were saying when this was first happening. When the story first broke, there was a lot of uh, hue and cry and wringing of hands about whether or not the Philippines was drifting away from the U.S., so here's some reasons to think that's not the case here. Uh, the Duterte has not talked about the Philippines agreements. Uh, Duterte has not talked about the Philippines' other agreements with the United States, uh, defense agreements, that is. So, for example, there's an enhanced defense cooperation agreement that allows U.S. troops to stay in the Philippines for extended periods. Uh, there's also a 1951 mutual defense treaty, which is actually the cornerstone of the alliance, uh, that obligates the U.S. and the Philippines to defend each other if one or the other comes under attack. <clears throat> so none of those treaties are on the chopping block, which suggests that probably uh, the Philippines isn't actually drifting away all that much, uh, at least not yet. Uh, let's see. Also, Duterte's own advisors have apparently advised him against breaking with the agreement, which just kind of underscores my point that this is an emotional shit fit that he's throwing and not really a substantive policy signal. So that said, uh, how important, just briefly, I thought I'd comment on this. How important is the Philippines to uh, U.S. regional strategy? So the Philippines is not a powerful country in its own right. It doesn't have like a big economy. Its politics, as you know, I've illustrated, are not super stable. Uh, but geographically, it's actually pretty important. Uh, because if you look at a map, uh, you can actually see how... Japan and the Philippines basically blocks China off from the greater Pacific region. Like you can't really pass uh, from China into the Pacific without crossing territory uh, that belongs to Japan uh, or the Philippines or perhaps Indonesia, since the Straits of Malacca run through Indonesian territory. <clears throat> so they're kind of stuck there. Uh, hypothetically, they could go through the Russian-held Kuril Islands. That's an option. Uh, but having all that territory there uh, blocking off Ch the Chinese Navy is a useful strategic asset. And the fact that it's relatively close to China is also beneficial. The Philippines' proximity to China is actually a very old strategic benefit. One of the reasons the Spanish went out of their way to colonize it after they discovered it is specifically because it was close to Chinese markets, which were immensely valuable at the time. Having an outpost very close there uh, was considered uh, immensely valuable to Spanish traders and to the Spanish government. Yeah, I just pulled up a map. It looks like for China, Philippines is definitely in that region. There's Taiwan as well. Yeah, Taiwan is the other major factor there. And there's some islands just to the north of, uh, between Taiwan and the Philippines. You can't really see it on Google Maps, but uh, there's some islands there that belong to the Philippines. I believe. So that acts to kind of choke that off there. And then Japan has the uh, Raikyu Island chain 
Yeah. And there's Okinawa. So that's kind of covers the territory between Taiwan and Japan. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it's a pretty decent defense line. That's uh, something that Chinese defense planners have been kind of concerned about and are obsessed about. You know, they want to extend China's defense line to kind of encompass that area. So they're not hemmed in like that. Mm-hmm. So st- geopolitically, I guess you could say the Philippines is still a pretty important country, if only for uh, military reasons. We'll probably be hearing more about it before too long over the next 10 years or so, because again, China's influence is growing. So there's this open question about one, how resilient the Philippines political system is going to be to foreign interference, since it's possible, perhaps probable that the Chinese are going to try to interfere there. And then also whether or not the Filipino government can really credibly uh, compete with China for the disputed territory in the South China sea. Uh, You know, if they can, then maybe there's a hope for continued close ties with, between the U.S. and the Philippines. Uh, the U.S. could help with that by offering more substantive aid to give them more confidence that they can substantively stand up to China there. But if they can't, <clears throat> if they can't, if they can't credibly claim that they, uh, if they can't credibly compete with China in the South China Sea, that kind of suggests that they're going to come to some kind of agreement, uh, which would definitely be beneficial to the Chinese-Philippines agreement, Philippines relations and detrimental to the U.S.-Philippines relations, since one of the big reasons that uh, the Philippines maintain security ties is because of concerns over China and the South China Sea. Yeah, it's a interesting relation if you're comparing the world Earth that we live in to StarCraft and how there are certain countries that have a powerhouse economy and their military is pretty strong, so you want to consider them as potential threats on the board, but as well, there are certain countries that are not powerhouses that you would consider rivals or strong allies, but they occupy a really key region yeah. of the map. And that's kind of where Philippines falls in that. Like they're not going to take over the world or anything, but if China wants to expand, Philippines is a key region that could have some dispute because they're tied with the U.S. historically, mm-hmm. militarily. I think we've got like... Uh... 10 minutes or so left. So is there anything you wanted to hit on? Uh, I don't think so. We covered a, a good bit. We got the Democratic primaries and a basic assessment of the runners in that, which I'm sure people will love to hear about. And then hit Malaysia, which I knew very little about. Now I know a whole lot more about. <laughs> Philippines is interesting too. It's always funny to see the the really human desire to be noticed and in people's thoughts and how people go about that in different ways. And Duterte is, is a very loud, aggressive kind of chest beating, pay attention to me kind of thing where a lot of the moves are symbolic, but uh, he finds them important and people like that kind of behavior in people to be loud sometimes Mm -hmm. is an edge. Yeah, there are certain historical moments where personalities like that can kind of break through, and we're kind of in the middle of one. We live in some pretty amusing times. I will take your point into consideration, too, about how because it's a more volatile time, there is a greater chance that if you push for positive change, you have a better chance of success rather than in periods of great stability Yeah, where things are mostly ironed out and kind of staying on track. Yeah. Consensus politics can be, it's good for stability, but you know, if you really want change, it can be really frustrating because it just seems like it's always out of reach. But uh, you know, it's when the iron is hot that you can really 
shape it, shape the metal, shape the system. So yeah, it's not a guarantee, you know, but uh, I can't remember any outsider candidates like Trump or Sanders ever being as success, successful as they have been uh, in the past four years, you know, in the time that I've been paying attention to politics anyway. Yeah, I think the American people right now are pretty dissatisfied with the people in politics, but there hasn't really been an agreement on how we're going to fix that and who the the champion of the people is who's going to stand against politics. It seems like a lot of people want to be in that seat. Like <laughs> Sanders and Trump are very idealistic about what they want to change and they push for really radical things, which the people in the middle are like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> so how do you win the the people who are firebrands and the people in the middle at the same time. That's the, that's the big question, you know, and the, that's the yeah, trillion dollar question yeah, for real. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, and it could really just come down to a massive convention fight for the Democrats. And then in the general, I don't know, it's going to be really interesting. Um, either way, if they nominate a moderate, then it's going to be uh, moderate versus Trump, you know, moderation versus populism. So we're going to see whether or not uh, we get the hate Trump vote. You know, all the people who were uh, discouraged voters in 2016, maybe they just hate him enough to come out and vote against him. And he didn't win by a whole lot in 2016. So that's hypothetically possible that a moderate could defeat him like that. But then on the other hand, you've got the the Nixon factor, you know, in a sense. You know, you've got this uh, Richard Nixon did not win a plurality of the votes in 1968 when he first ran. You know, there was a bunch of political presidential candidates running at that time. You know, there were Southern Democrats under George Wallace, and there was the establishment Democrats under Hubert Humphrey, and I think there was another one too. So, you know, votes got split a bunch of different ways, and Nixon didn't seem like he had a big mandate. But then the next election in 72, he won by a landslide. You know, people got four years of him. And uh, they liked what they got. And so there could be something similar with Trump, even though a lot of people just really hate him. He could have turned, uh, he could have satisfied enough of his core supporters and core constituents that uh, there may be a big increase in support just because he seems to have delivered on his promises. So that'll be interesting to see how that works out if there's a moderate Democrat. But then if there's a radical Democrat, if there's probably Bernie Sanders, uh, that's going to be populism versus populism. <laughs> we haven't we haven't seen that, and I don't know if we've ever really seen that. It seems like there's always been at least one establishment presidential candidate running. So that's going to be bizarre if that happens. I don't know what that looks like. Well, if you are concerned about spending too much money on the different paid TV platforms like Netflix, Prime, and Hulu and shit like that, you could just follow American politics and there's always going to be some stupid stuff happening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you very much, Agent Smith, for coming back another week. I hope we can get more on track. We did have some microphone stuff, which has been fixed now. For the most part, there was a little bit of an echo that we tried to fix live as we were going. Oh, I'm sorry. But I wasn't it, aware. I think it was an issue on my end. So I have some very fancy headphones that have open back, which is really good for the acoustics, but is not good for my microphone picking up my headphones. Oh, gotcha. So that's not an issue on your end. That's kind of us trying to fine tune everything. But there was none of that like snap, crackle, pop we were getting before, <laughs> which I think was just the yeah. headphones given out. 
Yeah, they're, they were in a pretty bad way. Exposed wires and all, so it doesn't surprise me. They got some really good mileage, so we appreciate that. Them. They have a privileged pace, place in my past. I used them for a very long time. Hell yeah. Yep, that's what items are for, to get that utility. Well, cool. The chat was good to have you back. Thank you very much for coming on once again and sharing your knowledge with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yep. You take care of yourself, sir. Good luck with your changes to your diet and your fitness. Hope that kicks ass for you, and we will see you on the next one. See you in the next one.